Good morning and welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you all here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. Our second hour is always a deeper dive into something, and we're really excited today because Alex has been away. He was gone yesterday, if some of you noticed that. He was at the Silicon Valley Conference on uh, Technology, and he is going to come back in our second hour and report on that and tell us all uh, of all the new stuff he saw there. So, that all said, it's time to dive into our questions this morning. Uh, Mitch, what's our first question? Thank you, Bill. Our first is in from Liberty White in Toronto, Canada. Uh, what does the panel think about the new features Ecamm announced yesterday? Any favorites? And Nigel's going to start us off here. Nigel? Thank you. Uh, my favorite is the video ISOs. I've only really started playing with it. I would tell you Ecamm has some of the best uh, betas or betas. Uh, that are really solid. They really work very well. So I've been playing with that. And the whole idea that a sort of lower entry point, you can use Zoom ISO into Ecamm and get uh, video ISOs. We've only ever had audio ISOs and mix a program that way. Ecamm gets better and better and stronger and stronger. And I know there are other sort of more high-end versions, but that one works as a great entry point. I know you've only had it for a very short period of time, but was there something that really popped up to you that you thought you were going to find that particular feature useful? Or yeah, is it, it just it's really it's really the video ISOs? That's the thing that every time you know uh, the Toro Tech or somebody else I know is working with Ecamm. That's the thing I've been going on 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 about. So the. I'm a one-man show when I do our work podcasts. So, um, you know, I bring them in across the interviewer feature, which is really easy to use, but I think Zoom ISO will be a better quality picture. I mix the show using my stream deck, so I, I can, you know, there's normally only three or four of us, and so I have all the scenes preset on my stream deck, and I really, by touch, can mix the show as we go. I record it uh, using Ecamm, and up to now I've had each individual ISO of the audio stream. So I then bring all of that into uh, Final Cut Pro and remix the audio to make it better because invariably it's not level. The fact that I could now do that with video as well, if that if I can make that work, means actually I could do a multicam and have a completely different broadcast. And it's something that someone at my skill level can do, and it's really, really easy. Thank you for that. That's a great explanation. Let's go on to the next question. From Lucas Herzog in Mainz, Germany, Yamaha just introduced the AG08 live streaming mixer, which looks like a little bit like their version of a Flow 8. Any thoughts so far? And there's a link to it. Mitch, you're going to take this on. I'm going to kick it off. I, I don't think it looks as, as much like a Flow 8 as it looks more like a Rodecaster Pro. And all of those uh, devices are starting to uh, be podcaster experts. They all have the same features. They have multiple uh, inputs with faders. They've got sound effects on little uh, touchpads. Um, they connect via USB. Uh, you can change your voice. And Aaron lies the problem I have with all these things is I really don't like all these sound effects. I think it should do just what it's meant to do, which is to provide a way to mix uh, different microphones together. Um, I'm not a big fan of all these uh, weird things that uh, you can do to your voice because it only works once and then everybody's tired of it. So uh, it's just a temporary kind of thing. So I'm, I'm kind of putting it towards uh, a Rodecaster Pro 2, uh, which uh, Courtney has here. And um, some other people may have some opposing points of view, but I don't think it's a flow weight. So you think there's too much temptation there to use the toy tools and not make the professional ones. Temptation, 
and patience. Those are two things that have to be applied to those devices. Fair enough. Chris Fenwick, your thoughts. I don't know what that noise was. Um, uh, interesting comment, uh, Mitch. I think that it kind of goes back to like in the 80s when new keyboards were released. Some of them had very distinctive uh, uh, sound patches. And there was always like a race to say, oh, who's going to use the OB8, you know, uh, horn thing on their album? And then all of a sudden, you know, Eddie Van Halen uses it on Jump. Uh, I think the coolest feature of this Yamaha mixer, is you can get it in black or white to Ooh. match the decor of your studio. So That's we have to sweet. start thinking about mixer livery now, how it's, how it's, what color you want to order it in. That'd be awesome. Uh, Alexander Knight has a thought. Oops, I'm not hearing you, Alexander. I think you're still muted. Yeah, it looks pretty neat. The routing features look pretty good. The only thing I can't seem to find, which is rather important, is whether or not the preamps are any good. Now, Yamaha normally knows what they're doing with audio, but I, I'm, I'd be very curious to see the actual specs, the actual total gain that they give you on, the, on those preamps. Are you worried about things like those inefficient microphones that we run across occasionally, like the Shure? Yeah, that's my main concern. Yeah. There's a, there is a trend now with a lot of these types of products coming out that people are waking up to the fact that they need to start putting better preamps in these things for, you know, the types of microphones that a lot of us use in broadcast, like the RE20s, the PR40s, the SM7Bs, those types of microphones. I think it's hard to beat the Rodecaster Pro 2 at this point, uh, especially considering that they keep on adding more and more functionality to it. I don't see anything in this Yamaha that offers any kind of noise suppression or downward expansion, anything like that. Maybe I missed it, but other than that, it looks like a pretty decent hardware for someone with, uh, you know, that just needs a couple of microphones. Courtney, what are your thoughts? I haven't had a chance to play with it. Just looking at it, I don't think it has near the features that the Rodecaster Pro does, uh, especially since it doesn't have an LCD. You have to use uh, an app or some type of uh, um, web-based interface for it to control things like the, um, you know, the uh, limiters and any of the sound modification tools. It just has two VU meters on it. There's no LCD to operate it on the unit itself. Its main mix main mix level is on the left, main faders on the left, which is ab <clears throat> absolutely the opposite of almost every other mixer on the market. Uh, it's flipped. So, yeah, I'm not sure I understand the layout, the, uh, the decision uh, not to make it uh, operable without an external device to uh, connect to it. All right. Well, hopefully, Lucas, that gives you some food for thought. Uh, let's go on to the next question. And it's coming in from Jeffrey Reyes in Bronx, New York. Capture card or A10 Mini? I was considering a Blackmagic 4K Quad HDMI capture card. I know it involves having to use software to switch, but does the panel think a hardware device like an A10 is better? Jesse Kester is going to start us off. I think this is really going to come down to two major factors. The first is how important 4K is to you. And if 4K is essential to your workflow, then you've kind of ruled out the A10 because that only the, the A10 minis only exist in the world of 1920 by 1080. Uh, that said, if you do a lot of field production, if you find yourself as a, a mobile videographer, the ATEM uh, ISO has absolutely changed how we approach, I'd say, 75-80% of the clients that we serve is how we approach those projects. And it has proved wildly useful beyond a video capture device 
um, in across across the board of all of our client services. So those would be the two main things that I think about as I go into this purchase. And if I were making it today, right now, I would get the ATEM Mini Ice. Nigel. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I mean, if 4K is really what you want, and that's the most important thing is to capture 4K, I think you need a card that captures 4K. And I think that uh, card you outlined is about $550. If, however, what you're starting to do is to think about production and um, making uh, switching between sources, putting, you know, picture in picture, all that sort of thing, you're either going to end up with a software solution or you're going to with a hardware solution or some combination of the two. And again, if 4K is the only dividing thing, Blackmagic 4K is a much more expensive entry point. If 1080 is good, you're going to end up buying an ATEM. I think this is a room full of people that ended up buying ATEMs and then bigger ATEMs and then bigger ATEMs. And so I think that's where you're going to end up. But it's going to absolutely depend on what you're trying to do. Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with Nigel. Uh, if you want 4K, you're not going to get it from an ATEM, so you're going to end up there anyhow. And um, if you want another alternative to compare it to, and you're comparing it to an ATEM, uh, the thing we've been talking about, the Roland uh, UVC-O2, uh, might get you there. Um, if you just want to um, have a single device, there it is. Nigel's got one in his hand there. So he's uh, one of the uh, early adopters of the box. Looks like that might be one to consider. And if you just want to transfer um, uh, your video from HDMI into USB, I have yet to open it uh, yet, but it's my Condor Blue. Uh, but that only works at 1080 also. So it's not going to compare to a 4K image. Courtney. Yeah, I agree. And, and most, almost all streaming, <clears throat> uh, live streaming is 1080p these days. Uh, some people are doing 4K, but uh, not that many because of the extreme cost and the bandwidth. I think the um, ATEM offers so much more than a regular capture card if you're going in 1080p. It, it offers you a complete uh, audio setup, a complete mix panel with dynamics and uh, <clears throat> all types of controls over multiple inputs. It offers you uh, compositing with um, you know a pretty good green screen uh Overlay, chroma key, and uh, keying, lower thirds, a small media library. All that stuff is built in for the from just the even the entry-level $300 one is uh, uh, quite capable. I would start there. Alex Lindsay, good to see you. <laughs> good to see you, too. Sorry about that. We had a little bit of fire this morning uh, across the around the world. Um, anyway, so um, uh, I would say that generally everyone's right the 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 atem is probably the solution that you want the only caveat would be if you want uncompressed footage so if you want to have for some reason be able to capture something that's you know uncompressed you're obviously not going to get that with the with the um with the with the switcher but but otherwise i i think the switch is probably the right way to go next question michael petra in poland asking what is the best way to start my adventure with augmented reality and camera tracking I've heard about Mosis Academy. Have you heard about it? And what soft on Macware, Mac OS do you recommend to dive into this? So you're kind of two things there. So um, the Mosis is a, is a camera tracking system that allows you to basically have your camera, you know, and you can add things to it. You know, we kind of ca- talk about AR, I, you know, it gets to be kind of an odd space of what we call AR and what we don't call AR. 
Um, but but anyway, the Mosis, what it does is it allows you to track those cameras very accurately and then put CG elements into it either in front or behind the the, the, per, the person who's talking. Uh, I was actually just talking to someone from Mosis yesterday at the, um, at the Silicon Valley video, and we're going to get them on the show to talk about that. So we'll be able to talk a little bit more about that. <clears throat> it was a very successful day yesterday. <laughs> we'll talk about it in the second hour. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so uh, we're going to talk to them about that in sp- specifically. As far as getting started in AI in, in, in AR, the question is, do you want to do it in the phone or are you trying to do AR, you know, the way that the, the computer graphics way that you're using with Mosis? Those are two different things. One is really kind of part of production. And another one is what are you going to do with a phone or what are you going to put on your on your face? And, and so um, think about exactly what you want to do and then start to play with it. Um, if the, the thing that I would think about is if you're talking about a Mac and AR, the first thing you want to do is start looking at USDZ. So USDZ is the 3D format that the that, that Apple has um, has picked up. USD was a Pixar format, and Apple just put a Z on it because they zipped it. <laughs> so anyway, so um, USDZ is a zipped version of the USD format, and it is what is used in. You can text that. You can open it in preview. You can open it in motion and, and, and well, through motion into Final Cut. So there's a lot of places that you can start to play with it. We expect to see a lot more this year. That's going to give you something where you can play with building something, throwing it on a desk, moving around it, and starting to get your head around what what's possible. Um, and uh, I would look at that. I would also look at um, MetaShape, which is going to let you build 3D models from your you know from photographs. Um, you can do a little bit of that with Polycam as well. Um, and so those are and Reality Capture, which is a um, you know some, something you can get on your. Um, on your phone, uh, and and you can put that on and, and play around with photogrammetry, USDZ. Those are the, the. If you're asking where should I start on a Mac, that's where I would start. Next question. Sky Gleason from Seattle, Washington. Here on our panel, has anyone painted with AI by using Nvidia's N? Excuse me, Studio Canvas. Uh, go ahead, Sky. I was just introduced to this tool, and the best description I can figure out is it's a visual version of. GarageBand in the concept of it's got the ability to have a paintbrush of a visual image, like a cloud in their, in their demo. And if their demo is anything like uh, what is possible, um, it's mind blowing because what you can create visually in the shape and the, and the size and the aspect ratio and the, the concept that you want, but it is inside the NVIDIA universe. So I, I was once working with a marketing term, a marketing firm, and they called it unique selling proposition. And so this is forcing you to go through NVIDIA. But again, I'd be interested in hearing what people's thoughts are on this, this new tool. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, it'd leave out half the people on this panel because it only runs on Windows 10 and an NVIDIA uh, RTX board. So you have to have the hardware to run it, uh, it doesn't run on a Mac or. Uh, it looks interesting. I'll have to put it on the one laptop that I now have that has an RTX board in it and uh, see if it uh, see how it works. But yeah, there are lots I think of limitations to that hardware. It looks pretty exciting. <laughs> so it's it is a, you know, I think that this is really outlining, and and we've seen some demos from Nvidia for this for a while. 
Um, it is outlining like how we're going to do previs, how, you know, concept drawings, um, you know, building those things out uh, without, you know, very, very fast. Um, and I think that it, that's where you're going to see a lot of use around it. I mean, you might see other uses, but I think that that's going to be this kind of ability. And I think you're going to see this kind of um, infilling, exfilling um, technology in a lot of other things as they go down the path. But NVIDIA obviously is really aiming to take a leadership role in in the metaverse you know, and figure out how they're going to make sure that they're serving that that market effectively. Go ahead, Chris. Um, I know this is slightly off topic, but and I believe it is NVIDIA. Has anybody seen that demonstration of the NVIDIA eye, eye thing where it re-aims re people's eyes at the camera? Yeah. yeah. It looks really, really good, but every once in a while it clicks, you know, so it doesn't, you know, you get you get a little off off axis and it um, it does something that you don't expect it to do. And the problem with that is... It has to be perfect, pixel perfect, one hundred percent of the time, um, to make that yeah. work. If it if it misses one frame, it means that your the other person on the other side is going to just stare at your eyes like, oh, that's weird, you know. Like, and and then they want you know, it creates this level. So I think that it could work, uh, you know, but but I think that it's I, it's a really I dangerous agree. thing. If, it, if it's not spot on, that's that's where we connect with super weird. It's kind of like that thing that's. That's flopping over your shoulder. It's completely distracting, Alex. What is that? My thing that's flopping over my over shoulder. Over your, right your lights. Oh, the cat is playing with my I, lights. I can't. I don't know if I can let you stay in the meeting. It's way <laughs> distracting. Could you please leave and go fix that? <laughs> cat. It's the cat. It's the cat. Is going my let the, the cat lights out. are on. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Sky. I want a cat. No, yeah. I don't. I do. But the. Uh, you. Alex, you made the comment that this is early previs concept, and I I just realized how many pieces of technology that are now front and center of style, and consequently it may be previs until it it becomes a, a commodity that people can get paid to do, and so that's where uh, it's we just live in interesting times, and this is one of the new tools. Yeah, and and it's you know I think that there's a lot around you know concepts. I found that um, for for twit we've we found that uh, doing um it's a really easy thing to do in mid journey is to is to just use build it build the thumbnails you want to use for twit or 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 other shows um because you can just create these kind of absurd things that you can throw in the thumbnail um that that turned out to be really a great use of mid journey as a as a real production tool um but i think that there's a lot of conceptual stuff that i think we'll keep on playing with um related to that and so i think that it's um yeah, it's going to be interesting. I again, I don't look at it as a, right now, currently. I don't look at it as a final thing. Although I, my last little off the subject, I got a request from NHK. NHK is a big broadcaster in Japan uh, over Twitter. I don't know if you saw the back and forth with me on Twitter. They they said we're using. I I had posted a a picture of the soup that I made. You know, I asked ChatGPT to give me a soup, and I made it. Like I just took the recipe and I made the ChatGPT soup, and uh, and it was good. <laughs> but I took a picture and tweeted out the the soup, and NHK is I guess doing a class about um, Chat GPT and generative you know technologies, and, uh, and they asked if I could use they could use the picture over Twitter. I thought that was funny. Anyway, so get next mid question. get mid journey to make a photo of the soup that Chat GPT gave you the menu yeah, for. Yeah, exactly. It's, I should I should I should load the soup into Mid Journey and then ask Mid Journey to make it something different. AI Inception. And, yeah, exactly. And my exactly. friend that introduced me to this NVIDIA concept has the the bridge between the mid journey and his 3D printer now. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, yeah, that's 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 um, things are starting. Food, to happen food is too. next. Is the point? <laughs> it, the the rest, all the recipes I've done so far have been great. Earl Grey hot. Yeah. No, next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, asking Rode has announced a new firmware update for Rodecaster 2 that allows submixes, including what goes out through the balanced outputs. This allows you to send a mix minus to your camera or switcher. Good, Courtney. But I haven't seen. I'll have to look at it this uh, because I have one of those, and I'm speaking on it now. Uh, is the ability to route something to the headphones that is not routed to the mix bus? So bring something in that uh, you know does a mix minus to the headphones only. Like I could bring um, you know uh, comms in and have it only go to the headphones, but not go to the main output. Um, I'll have to see if it does that, but I don't. In their example, it doesn't seem to have headphone mix as a output channel. And Alex, have you have already have you already played with this? Is this already something that you uh, do? You have that? No, but uh, I have played with a roadcaster in the past. But it uh, it definitely makes me want to buy one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's a good it's a good ad feature ad. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, first thing comes to mind: IFB, uh, perhaps uh, patch, patching phone mm. conversations in from people in different places. You don't want to send their voices back to them necessarily. All that kind of stuff. It just seems like it's becoming more and more of a broadcast device. It's cool. It's cool. Uh, a little. Uh, what was the price on the Roadcaster, uh, Courtney? What did you? Is it two ninety nine? Is that right or more? Okay, it was. It was five. Five. Five or six hundred. Yeah, five. Oh, five or six hundred dollars. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, next question. Chris Fenwick from Emeryville, California, asked, "I just bought an ATAM shuttle. Any gotchas or tips on setting it up for playback into my little HDMI studio?" I've got set up here. Go ahead, John. I, I don't understand. Is this the box you told Keenan not to ever use and you would never use a device like this? What changed your mind? Um, I needed to be able to push a button and have it automatically roll. <laughs> so I bought it, and, I, and I'm hoping that... Uh, I, I spent most of yesterday playing with mix effect and, you know, uh, macros and going down that whole path. And, you know, I know we talk about it a lot here, but most of the time I'm just a poser. You know, I'm just hanging out with smart people. So yesterday I was trying to get smart like all all y'all. And uh, I'm hoping that I'll be able to make it such that I can um, press a macro, like on Mix Effect, and have it actually select the appropriate video and take it and play it. So out of the menu of, I'm going to have to have two or three different videos loaded into it. Um, I'm hoping I can do that, but it's, I mean, it's a cute little box, I guess. It's a great little box. There you go, Sky. I um, had a, one of the large control surfaces on the Avid DS, and I would ended up using only one or two buttons on it because I just never got around to, uh, it was always way over there on the console. So, I guess where I'm going with this, Chris, is ergonomics is put it right there in front of you. And then you as a carpenter and a, and a craftsman in your garage, what tools do you use and why? And consequently, find a new new excuse to use that tool. Give yourself, a, you know, silly, silly questions on Friday day or, or opportunity and push yourself just incrementally, maybe. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Um, yes, uh, here it is, and I bought it just because it's got a big knob on it, and it's a very nicely weighted knob, and it feels great, 
and I uh, play with it like one of those little fidget uh, devices. Do you and, actually uh, use it? I mean, I get that. No, really I don't use it. I just device. play with the knob. Uh, it's a really Alex, expensive fidget device. It's I've got a better ones device. for you. I can get ones that are a lot less expensive than than that. But they don't look as techy. I admit that it looks more like you're using. It. So, what do you are you doing much playback? Um, I'm doing very little playback. Here's the uh, the downside: is that it has the same hyperdeck problems that the uh, the big boys have which is you have to have the same file on the SD card or it ceases to play only one of them. So you have first that to deal with, the first one. Um, it has a menu button on it, which is handy, but the problem is it goes out over the main uh, video. So you've got to make sure you're on preview because if you push that menu button, you're going to end up with a menu going on your uh, main bus. And you is don't it, want that. Is it the same length as the, uh, as the extreme? Does it like kind of... Line I think nicely. the profile yeah it does the it goes exactly. very nicely right along my extreme so it sits right in front of me and did I say that it has a really cool knob on here that's yeah. so weighted. Mitch does does that jog wheel push in and become a shuttle wheel like in the old Sony days um it does but it doesn't do it in other words it it'll it'll shuttle but it won't jog at least yet it's I mean got it's the got mode, the, but no programming yeah you can hear it Interesting. It's clicking. It's uh, just not doing it. Um, the other thing that I have a problem with it is is what it really desperately needs is the ability to easily top and tails files and build a playlist, which you cannot do. Right. The latest upgrade of Jonas's Playout B does have that ability. You can re-top and tail clips before you put into it. Um, uh, could you explain again what you said about you have to have one file on the card? Oh, that's a, that? so the all hyperdecks require you to have the exact, and I mean exact, same compression, <laughs> same number of, of audio channels, same bits flipped on them as the other ones. Otherwise, it takes the very first one and it shows it to you and then it doesn't show you any other ones. They don't even show up. So the the best the way to handle that is that you know I have a compressor setting that is my hyperdeck set thing and I just throw them all in there and I you know I will not even try to put something on a hyperdeck until I throw it through the compressor even if it's I'm I'm going from Apple ProRes to Apple ProRes you know it it I I make sure that it gets converted to that Apple ProRes and then we just throw them all on and it works fine so it's not a, like once you're used to it it's not a big deal but it is this this chaos that is created it's not well documented. And it's kind of a thing that creates chaos for the anybody who buys a hyperdeck of like, why can't I see my other files? And then you just build a system around it. You don't think about it anymore. If and only if wanted... I had a friend as smart of, as uh, Alex Lindsay who may want to email me that compressor setting. That'd sure. be really it's, cool. It's, why don't you just tell special. us? <laughs> tell it's us not, what it is. It's not special. It's any it's any any ProRes file. Um, I mean, I you can theoretically do H.264, but I never do that. So, I mean, mine is probably not what you want because because I work in 10-bit a lot. Um, mine is all, it's an HQ, you know, it's an HQ compression, which would be So it's not, not a specific setting. You're saying that it's every file on the HyperDeck has to be the same. The same. Setting. It doesn't have to Correct. be a special. It doesn't exactly. have to be special. It just has to be the same. And because one it, more thing, Chris, you cannot record and play back at the same time. So don't think of it as a... Uh, uh, playback or instant replay. We're not device. getting a three hundred dollar EBS, is what he's saying. Yeah, no, like of course not. Yeah, yeah. So, but the um, yeah, the the um, yeah. It, and now I think that I haven't tried it, but now that you have the folders, you can just throw them in there, and it'll just it'll just pump them out. So, so it's really really easy to to make that conversion. Um, the reason I I made a copy and made it called it Hyperdeck compression 
is specifically so I just know that that's the one because there's a bunch of Apple ProRes ones. I don't want to grab the wrong one by accident. But it's, I didn't change anything. It's like an Apple ProRes HQ, but it's called playback, playback, um, you know, conversion. You have successfully talked yourself out of one extra email. Thank you. Oh, yes. All right, next question. Next question in from David Brady in New York, New York. On the deck link quad two, how are the ports numbered? I tried sequentially connecting to an ATEM and my assumptions were wrong. Is it one three five seven two four six eight? And what's the ninth port for? Uh, ninth port is reference, um, and the it, I do believe it's one three five seven two two, and I and that is so that it's one two three four one two three four in and out. So if you'd have four out four ins four outs, um, so that's why it's done that way. Um, it's very confusing. <laughs> so so we always it took us a little while to figure it out but it is every it's 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 odd that even and it's um and it feels stupid when you do it but it that's that's what it is is it's four in four out um of the system so so, so it's, it's actually one two three four one two three four it's not one two three five seven it's one two three four out one two three four in but I think I would have been easier if they just made it one through eight <laughs> like I don't I, I know I bet you there were so many meetings that came up with the wrong answer. All right, next question. <laughs> from Douglas Carmichael, has anyone worked with Fusion Hub from Peplink? I've heard Peplink devices mentioned on office hours a lot. What unique advantages do they bring? You know, I'm, I, uh, I think Fusion Hub is basically giving you, and I'm going to make this up right now because I haven't looked at it, but I'm pretty sure that um, Fusion Hub is the cloud version of what Peplink does to, to basically backhaul your, your bandwidth. So, what we've had in the past is I have a peplink somewhere in the field and I have a peplink server in my in my building. So what I'm doing in the field is I'm using the bandwidth from my building. So it basically, you know, comes, you know, comes back there um, and then uses that bandwidth um, to, to, to go out. Um, and so what I think fusion is there is that it's in the uh, it's in the cloud. Um, so it goes into the, you know, so basically it does that for you and probably a subscription service that it, you're actually using the bandwidth in the cloud from the PepWave um, or the or the PepLink. Um, and it's uh, useful. You know, if we, you know, you can bond, you know, what it allows you to do. You have to have somewhere on the other end. If you've got a PepLink with five, you know, five modems, it's got to bond somewhere. So what we would do is bond it back to our office and then hand it the internet from our office. But you would, the PepLink would be, the Fusion, I believe, is is going into the cloud and doing the same thing. Next question. Eric Billings in Washington, D.C., USA. Now that stock photo providers are exploring AI-generated scenes, the next step seems to be AI-generated video. Does the panel think there will be a viable future for footage resellers like Clippin? Uh, go ahead, John. It's a great question. And, and the image tagging tools from the big companies, Google, Microsoft, are absolutely terrific these days. They've used those tools to catalog and build their models. I'm starting to see tons of tweening now where people are creating two images inside of mid-journey and they're tweening between them to do like morphing effects. But vi videos on its way, you're going to be able to, to create scenes directly in, into uh, After Effects and uh, in Premiere soon. I go with Sky. And again, mid-journey, hearing from the gentleman that's the, the head of it, he talked about he's wanting to do 2D well. And next is 3D, but it does take more horsepower. But he's he's now got 10 million people 
and they're breaking the servers and the services because it's it's growing so quickly. The interest is so deep. So consequently, is it possible? Yes. Are are they are people thinking about it? Absolutely. So uh, stay tuned. Good, Courtney. Yeah, luckily Microsoft opened their wallet and gave them millions of dollars to uh, help alleviate their server issue. Hopefully, um, I think we will see video coming up uh, once they master 3D model generation uh, and lighting. Then you know they can move those 3D models any way you want, have them deliver any dialogue they want generated by a chatbot. So uh, they could have them make up the dialogue and uh, perform a scene. Give me a scene from Shakespeare. Good, Bill. One of my many tip, uh, takeaways from yesterday's discussion with Mike, uh, Mick Reed of Clippin was that there's so many metadata schemas out there that I'm hoping that services like Clippin or others uh, start to coalesce um, the entire industry around certain fields or field orders that need to be consistent or should maybe try to be consistent so that there's interoperability in the metadata between these large things. I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but boy, that would sure make the world a lot easier because the schemas out there for metadata are so diverse between things. It's really hard to share data. Uh, image and heat, image, not image, image and heat. That, that's a, that's a, that's an artist. Uh, Im, uh, Im, uh, image and video. <laughs> the two of the two of them work together. It could be really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, um, uh, Imogen Video is Google's version of producing. I think it produces 1280 by 768 at 24 frames a second. You put the text in, it gives you a video on the way out. So it's definitely on its way um, to producing a lot of really crazy and zany, <laughs> zany videos that are going to be out there. I, I have to admit, it'll be really interesting to see. I'm very curious if the stock market like the, the not the stock market but the stock photo market survives uh this process because i think that as it gets more accurate as our tools if you see what nvidia did and if you see if you extrapolate that to I mean, it's, I don't, you know, like if I want something that's kind of what I want anyway, because that's what you get with stock photography is something that's kind of what you wanted. <laughs> so, so if, if you're going to do that and it gets, it doesn't have to get much better before I'd probably be able to produce something better in stock photography than I could in, um, in, uh, with, with, uh, AI. Go ahead, Bill. You might not have been on earlier, but we were talking, I think, in the pre-show about the fact that Shutterstock now has a generative model built into their Shutterstock service so that. Get I know. I just don't know how they. Things. I think it's. I think it's fine. The problem is, is that how do they keep up with Midjourney? The, they're doing their own version of this, but they don't have ten million people feeding the machine. Like that's the the reason Midjourney is pulling away is because all of the you know it gets smarter with everyone using it. Like it's not you know that that model keeps on getting you know better. They get to see you know they're you know so it's it is. Uh, I, I think that the problem is is that they're not. They don't have enough points of reference. That's the problem. I think that that's the problem Shutterstock's going to have is that they don't, they can't keep up with something that is um, got 10 million users. But yeah. I wonder if the people who look for stock photography, if the training model that they use in Shutterstock will be more advertising oriented as opposed to the fanciful models that we tend to get on a mid journey where everything looks bigger, more interestingly lit. Uh, but you not can give it realistic. the light model. You can give it the lighting models you want. Like I put glam lighting into a lot of things just because it makes it look like an advertisement. <laughs> so glam lighting, I've done in the style of Jill Greenberg. You know, so you get the lighting on either side in the style of, you know, you can put in the style of a lot of folks and you get you get a look. You know that 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 pops out. So um, you can give it like literally in the style of a photographer and oftentimes it will nail it. You know, like, you know, this is, you know, like, oh, I see why, why I did that. 
I prefer, I like Rembrandt lighting as well. Yeah, Goat Sky. Make sure you say in the style of, because I did my picture with the uh, Van Gogh and I came out with one missing ear. So. <laughs> yeah the um uh i uh you can do you can mix and match them too so i've done t- I, one of my favorite ones to just see what it, what happens is i'll say in the style of hr giger with rembrandt lighting and you get just mid-journey just goes absolutely crazy like it just it just it just goes you are crazy and i will give you a crazy photo back and like you know um like a mechanical octopus anyway next question Chris Taylor from Carlsbad, California asked, why does Zoom occasionally pulse the focus zoom of the camera feed? I don't think it's pulsing. Um, I think that what you're talking about is a dropping resolution and coming back up again. And, and that usually means you've got a bandwidth issue. So I think that the, the pulsing that you're, you're seeing is it dropping to a lower resolution, which will look like it's popping just a little bit because of the, the resolution changing. And then when it pops back up, it'll, it'll so it probably means that you're, you're probably gonna see a little message at the top of Zoom at nearly the same time that says your internet is unstable <laughs> or, or look for it. it. It kind of pops up and disappears. But um, that that really sounds like a, a resolution shift. Um, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Isn't that have something to do also if you're in the uh, gallery view that if somebody uh, uh, pins you, uh, changes the resolution to fit that? It, it can. If someone pins you and it's requested, it also may cause your webcam to pop um, pop back. So if you've zoomed in on your um, on your camera and you're in gallery view, sometimes the first time that a, a webcam is requested full resolution, um, a lot of the cameras will go to a, a, a known position, which is usually really zoomed out, which is one of the main reasons I would never jump into an important meeting with a webcam <laughs> because I'm just not, I'm, I'm always scared that it's going to do something weird and, and I, I, frame, I kind of build my frame the way I want to build it. Uh, next question. And it's from Gilberto Espichi from Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Is there a way to manually push text from a Word document line by line onto the screen like subtitles? Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. I can tell you what not to do. Uh, copying, pasting into a program like After Effects in order to accomplish this. Uh, Microsoft Word has all this debris that it adds to uh, anything. So it's best to do it from a text document if you're going to do it. So uh, I guess the workaround would be Word... Uh, transferred to a text document, then bring it into whatever program you want to push it. I go ahead, Courtney. I actually wrote a so- wrote software to do this once for a uh, failed a comedy pilot, but uh, because they had to do subtitles that appeared on the screen, a translation of, of Spanish into English that appeared on the screen so the audience would laugh at the right time. And so I had to manually load the script in, uh, the translation in, and click it onto the screen just ahead of before the person said it. So the laugh would happen at the right time. Anyway, uh, I had to write custom software, but you could maybe take teleprompting software and size the window down to like an eighth of the screen and then choose the font size. It's the right size and just scroll it up. But as far as parceling it out a sentence at a time, I think it would require something manual, maybe some closed captioning software, is out there that can work off of a canned file uh, and a manual to take next line, next line, next line. You might be able to trigger it that way with captioning software. Good, Bill. One interesting thing that FileMaker Pro does of all the things is it does text calculations. You can easily program find the carriage return or find a 
character like a semicolon that you put into things uh, and then get X number of words from that and then return that as a value. And you could build something in there. I'm pretty sure that would allow you to do what you're talking about. Take a, a fixed group of words and then export them as individual pieces. Yeah, I think that um, one thing to look at is also there's a piece of software called Prompt Smart. And really what it's designed to do is be a teleprompter for someone who doesn't have a teleprompt operator. And so what it does is it listens to your voice and it actually just starts scrolling up. It is not as good as a teleprompt operator. I can tell you I've used it. I use it at home because I don't have a teleprompt operator. And um, so when I, if I want to read a text, I can take my, my text file and I can throw it into this thing and it pops up on my teleprompter. And I literally just start reading and it just starts scrolling with me reading. And so it does it all by itself, um, you know, matching that. And it does, a, it does a pretty good job. The problem is, is it doesn't, teleprompter does it nice and smoothly and it tends to jump a bit. You know, it's trying to find something. So as someone who knows what a teleprompter should look like, <laughs> I, I, I know that it isn't as good, but can I read it? Absolutely. You know, once you get used to it, you can absolutely read it. What you could do if you wanted something to show up at the bottom of the screen is, is put that software up and you could put the you could put the text you know you could build a window just cut out a window of it and as it goes by it'll just you could key it in there put it into something that you want to do below and it would follow along with the text so i don't know if it's manually um in that area but it could um, be another thing another thing that you could do is you could take it all into keynote and put every one of those on a you know all the text that you wanted on a frame and now you're just going frame 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 so you have all the um, you would just, and, and you could probably do it all in one slide. You just make it on objects that just say next, next, but, but it would probably be easier to do it with multiple slides because you could edit them easier. Um, but otherwise you could put them all in as objects that just fade in, fade out, fade in, fade out, fade in, fade out, you know, and, but uh, stacking it all in, depending on how long it is, stacking it all into one slide might make it unstable. <laughs> so, so um, multiple slides, uh, but you could have them, do, you could even have them zoom out and zoom back in and you could have them fly in, fly out. No, I, I wouldn't do that. I go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was going to mention that uh, the problem you run into is that if you want to keep it to a certain area of the screen, a lower lower third, let's say, uh, you have a problem if you want to get a whole sentence on to pop on, you have to change the font size from line to line and uh, to make it fit. Otherwise, it'll run off or it won't be on there. It's going to have to scroll. Uh, so it depends on what you're trying to display. And this is the problem I ran into. And when I, I conquered it by writing the program that would actually have the... Uh, a delimiter to delimit the end of the line that I wanted to put on the screen and a font size with each line. So I just put those in a delimited by uh, certain characters on the line in the Word document, and it would bring up the line, set the font size and put it on the screen and until I hit the space bar and I'd bring up the next one, put it on the line and change the font size on the fly for each individual line. And I'd run through it once and change the font size and then would remember it. So it's a fairly complex process. And I don't think you're gonna get any find, find anything that can do it automatically uh, based on just a word file. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, the, it's interesting how some questions in the show really capture everybody's imagination. Uh, the, the real question is, do you have to be able to do it live or are you gonna post it? I wasn't gonna mention the keynote thing, hack that uh, Alex mentioned, but that's what I do. Uh, when I have to make, a lot of times when I make subtitles, I have to make them it, it, uh, it, in a very specific style. The clients are asking for, I need these colors and I need this font. And I don't want it centered. I want it over here because I want to have room for the bug or whatever it is. And so because of that, the typical subtitling um, tools normally don't 
give you that much flexibility. So I end up doing it all completely manually. The idea of changing the font size, Courtney, would drive me crazy uh, because I, I think your eye wants to pin register to a position. That's why I always justify left. And if it's changing size, I just think it would drive my mind crazy, at least me. Um, so what I do is I lay, I agree with what Mitch said, a bunch of uh, junk in the word file. I put it into a simple text document. I then adjust the, um, uh, the, the width of the column until it, um, until it fits in the predetermined size that I want it to be on the screen. And at that point, I just copy and paste two lines at a time into, I, I use Keynote because I can create a little background, I can make it transparent, I can do all the stuff, I can make it all exactly the way I want, and I just export a bunch of PNGs and drop them into my editor. But again, the real question for Gilberto is, are you trying to do it live or not? Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada. With an extreme ISO and Blackmagic cameras, I understand you can replace the 1080p files with the raw versions. Is there a hack to do this with non-Blackmagic cameras and have them in sync? Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, unfortunately, Alexander, the uh, the hack is to just uh, do it. I mean, uh, you could walk around the room and hit record on all the different machine uh, cameras, or you could ask your camera guys, hey, everybody, raw camera. Uh, you could do that, and then you're going to have to bring all that stuff in and sync it up. Hopefully, you have matched time code. If you don't, you're going to use a clapperboard or just sync the audio. I mean, I'm sure there's a way to do it. And in terms of doing it in an automated fashion, somebody will figure out how to do it. But right now, the black magic way is really the sexiest way to pull it off. Go, Jesse. Um, we haven't gotten this fully automated, but we have gotten this down to about three to five minutes when we get into our post environment. I'm not going to show you the full process. But I'm going to try to give you enough of an overview that you can get done what you need to get done. So what you're seeing here is an interview we did. Two of the people are actually in the room and one is uh, coming in through Zoom and we want to replace the Zoom footage. So the first thing we do is um, we find that footage in the media pool and I'm going to lean in because I'm on a small monitor. Thank you for your patience there. So we find that in the media pool. We change the clip color uh, to something very obvious. I'm going to go pink on this one. Um, if it stops doing flags, ay, ay, ay. I apologize. It's a very small monitor, but I'm going to, it'll pick up speed once I get this cleared. There we go. Um, and what you do then is you lift this up to the, you lift all the pink clips to the next level. And then, uh, I'm going to show you what we do on the second timeline. Um, so we've got all the pink ones up on a, a secondary timeline. We sync using the audio for the replacement footage, and you'll see that the replacement footage is quite different from the uh, what we recorded on the ISO. And then simple as can be, you take every remaining clip um, and just drag it down, and that will delete all of the footage that you don't need from the replacement footage. You can turn off your old footage, and now we have... Um, we have the replacement footage on a timeline alongside of our uh, raw footage from the camera. Go ahead, Bill. Um, that seems weird to me only because I use Final Cut and there's a thing called compound clips in Final Cut. And if you put your clips in your original clip in a compound clip and then use that to populate the AB stuff in the timeline, if you go back and replace the low res compound clip source, with a high res, it just ripples through the whole thing in one movement and fixes it all. 
just make sure to put make sure audio gets into that camera you know all yeah. the cameras because you can match with audio and it just makes it easy so anything will work with the audio stuff um you just need to make sure that you're capturing a, a clean feed to that camera next question from Matthias Utili from Helsinki, Finland. When to use power conditioners in a rack and what it does? Do you plug all items, PC, mixer, converter, etc., to it, or some of them with just regular AC power strip? Go ahead, Nigel. So I think you have to separate out in your mind power conditioners and surge protectors. So if you have very expensive stuff, put surge protectors behind it if you are not happy with the clean uh, with the uh, power coming into the house. Uh, conditioners can go from cheap to very, very expensive. And that's all about the equipment on the other side of them. So if we were going to put a $250,000, you know, hi-fi audio two-channel system in, we would, put a, we would put a conditioner in to make sure we were sending the cleanest power we could because the people will hear the difference. So lots of it depends on the nature of the quality of the power you're getting in and the delicate nature of the equipment on the other side. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yes, it's. Um, I have these in my racks, and there's different types of them. Most of them are just surge protectors. They're not really. Uh, uh, they don't really do any voltage conversion or anything. They'll they'll trap uh, with metal oxide varistors. They will trap a spike or something. If somebody turns a motor on and there's a voltage spike at the line, they they may trap those. But the main thing I use them for is. Um, power control mine has uh, eight uh, plugs along the back and it has eight switches on the front so that i can individually turn stuff on and off from the front panel and all the plugs are on the back panel so it keeps the distribution on the back side of the panel or inside the case and it um, allows me to turn things off that i don't need them or turn them on as i need them and i give it get an indication with a light on the switch which things are on and which things are off and it does the added uh thing of, of spike protection, but it doesn't do very much. Uh, you know, Furman makes some power conditioners that have some uh, chokes in them and things like that to prevent high frequency switching noise from getting out onto the, into your equipment. But uh, other than that, it's mainly surge protectors. You go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I think a power conditioner like Nigel was discussing uh, makes a lot of sense. At least for me, I have uh, problems here with our power where we get what are called sags, where the power drops low but doesn't go completely out. And a surge protector is not going to touch that. You need a conditioner that's going to boost the power if it needs to be boosted and reduce it if it's too high. Uh, those two things work well with very sensitive gear. Um, I think that uh, Nigel is referring also to um, hi-fi systems where you've got very sensitive preamps and amplifiers, and you can hear when the power supply is definitely not being uh, properly supplied with the right uh, sine wave voltage. Good. Uh, Alex? Yeah, so Furman makes a lot of really good products. I use power conditioners not just to protect the equipment from overload, but for actually reducing or, or uh, lowering the overall noise floor. I have the Radial Power 1. I've got two of them in my rack, and they're both on separate circuits. So in addition to having the uh, the MOV protection in there, they have uh, they do have stuff in here that filters out RF interference, and it says AM radio signals uh, out of the power line, that, t that type of stuff. So I think that's pretty important, too. Yeah, and generally for our, our racks, we're, we're using UPSs. <laughs> you know, like, so, you know, we don't do any production without UPSs. Um, so, so those are our conditioners. Uh, next question. Next question coming in from myself. Uh, the question is, what's the future of AI, 
providing stock footage with isolated backgrounds, like an alpha or white background. I go ahead, Bill. I think it's really bright. I mean, uh, there's a whole thing in audio called stems where you have individual breakouts of instruments. Uh, it's very similar to what people understand from things like After Effects or Premiere with layers. Um, and you can go in and manipulate the layers. I think that's going to eventually end up coming to all sorts of stock footage as well uh, with composites, at least, maybe not camera originals that were shot at one time, but as people make these things like we're seeing mid journey and things like that, that are compositing things, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see them um, putting together a system where the individual stem layers are provided along with the clip content that you buy. Go ahead, John. Uh, on Adobe's site, it actually says generative AI content last updated January 17th. Want your content made using generative AI tools to be accepted in Adobe stock collection? Find out how to submit authentic assets and meet our quality, legal, and technical standards. So Adobe's being very, very careful, but they're allowing submissions to come into AI. They're going to do it. Go ahead, uh, Javier. I agree with Bill. I think it's uh, it's going to be super dependent on what you can do with it because you can ask for it to create something with a different background. I mean, white backgrounds is what, it's what we've been doing to take the background out of a stock photo of an object or a person or something. When you can ask it for a different background, you can uh, even, you can also like do draw this thing with this kind of background or for this kind of use, like to use on a print or to use on a screen or to use on this. And it will take your input into account or even like create, a, I don't know, like a dog with this background. So you can use your input as the background and you can, with the generation would take that into account. So like, uh, I think like background, background, white backgrounds or alpha are like more deliveries. And when you're creating from zero, you're not constrained to those deliveries. You can ask it for, I'm going to use it like this. So take that into account and give me a, a different uh, layer for the background or just like take into account my background for the lighting or like, oh, that it opens up the whole different, uh, Pats. Go ahead, Courtney, real quick. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of time before Midjourney just puts in his in its generation program. He could ask for a transparent background and it'll generate a, a target file or, or a TIFF, any of the file formats that support a alpha channel. And it can generate an alpha channel along with your image if you say transparent background and then describe the object that you want in the foreground. It should be able to do that pretty quickly. It's it would be a a simple programming test to change that with all the neural networking that's going on in the background, uh, that'd be probably a pretty easy fix. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I'd like to be able to uh, to make changes uh, for commercial photography uh, type thing if I need to move somebody over here or on the left, make room for a product shot. Um, having that ability to, uh, to move the elements around are very important uh, for still and eventually for video. Next question. Next question in from Nigel DeSaw in Austin, Texas. With the DeckLink Quad 2, are the output standard SDI cables or something else? Yeah, they are a little bit smaller. Um, these are There's two small things that you can get. There are little SDI connections, but they, this is not them. <laughs> these are DIN, I believe they're DIN 1.0 slash 2.3s. Um, so they are a little snap. They're a little, little thing that snaps on. And, um, and so it, it basically, you push it in and it will connect to it and then it, then you have an SDI cable and you have a couple different options there um, you can have it basically go out as a SDI mail coming out of the back like it would be out of the back of your um, so you can get a short cable that's like six inches long 
that's DIN 1.0, 2.3, and you push it in, and it's six inches long, and it comes out, and it just acts as if it was another connector and an SDI signal that you would have. And then you can hook your SDI signal to that little connector. The other option is to have it be the, I can't remember whether male or female, but you can have it be the cable. So you can, I have, the ones I have for my extreme are longer. So they're like two feet long or three feet long. And they are the DIN that goes into the quad, and then it comes out, and it actually is the, I guess it's the male that would go into your switcher. So then I just have this like kind of short feed of, of doing that. And so you can do either one. You can get them. Most of the time we buy them as the females so that you can just put them in and then they all just kind of hang out as a, as a, um, um, as a tail. And then you just put your, your cables into it. I did it a different way as an experiment because they were both going to be close together. Now I'm not sure if I needed that. <laughs> so, but, but the, um, but you can, and then you can always, um, you know, change them with a the barrel, you know, so you can change them out, you know, with a barrel to get from one to the other. If you pick the wrong choice, I would always, I, I'll try to find the right ones that, that we, I'm not happy. I'm not that happy with the ones I got. They are all 1.0, 2.3s are not made the same. So they are, they're definitely not. Uh, there are some that are really a pain in the neck, and I got ones that were kind of marginally a pain in the neck to get. Laird, uh, L-A-I-R-D, um, make the best ones, in my opinion. They're a little bit more expensive, but the the 1.0, 2.3 connector is just nice. It just pops in and grabs onto it nicely, and it comes off really nicely. Um, and I find that the Laird ones work the best um, of all the ones that I've that I've used in the past. Sometimes they're hard to get, so sometimes I, I, I uh, in a rush, in a pinch, I will use something else and generally regret it. Um, yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, I bought a bunch that are like this uh, that they have on uh, B&H. I think I got mine from um, Amazon, but uh, a lot cheaper than 19 bucks a piece. I think they were about 10 bucks a piece. And they seem to work pretty well, uh, the mini DIN, the DIN to female uh, B&C. Yeah, and, and it's they all work. It's it's what you're looking for is the creature comfort of how well they connect and how easy they are to get on and off. And why that's important is we're going to take them on and off a lot. If they, if they're hard to get off, if they get stuck in there, or if they don't do it, you're going to move them around a lot more and that's going to re reduce the, the uh, lifespan of that card. You know, so we found that we can wear those things out because you also see them in SFPs where they'll have an SFP that has these, these pop, these little things sticking out. Um, so those are the, that's what you're looking for there. Next question. Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio, Texas, asking, I'm using used to using software tools for still photography when it comes to high ISO noise. What software or plugins would you recommend for video? I own Premiere and Resolve. Uh, go ahead, Bill. The big gun out of the box some years ago was neat video. Everybody used it. The only downside to it is that it took a long time to process video sometime and remove that noise. Uh, more recently, I've seen those kind of denoise filtering functions that were, I think, informed by the way they did it with neat, but come into the software tools. I know that I'm pretty sure they're they're decent denoising tools. The bespoke tools like Neat Video would give you more control, but there's a lot more available now than there used to be to denoise video. Go ahead, Jesse. Uh, Resolve has a really nice tool for this. And the, the cool thing about denoising when you're in a video program is you're not just using adjacent pixels for information. You're using uh, three dimensions. So uh, adjacent frames to get that pixel information. It's very easy to find. Uh, you go to your um, color tab 
and then go to the far right. You've got this little icon here and you'll see temporal NR, that's temporal noise reduction. And you can tell it how many frames you want it to sample as it tries to reduce noise on the, the frame that you're working on. And this will apply it throughout the entire clip. And then you can apply that same, uh, that same grade to multiple clips. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. And if you're coming from still photography, you might recognize Topaz as a plugin. Um, they now make it for video. Their algorithms are good. And now they've got an AI that pretty much does what you're talking about here. Next question. Next question in from Douglas Carmichael. Could you use a PepLink device like the SDX Pro for fixed residential use, or are they designed for mobile deployment? Oh, the PepLink... Um all the peplinks are kind of designed for mobile deployment. I mean, it depends on what kind of mobile you're doing, but they're all able to do, you know, they're all kind of designed to work in the, in the field generally. Uh, next question. Next one from Eduardo Augustine in Panama. I've been using ATEM Mini Extreme and Keen Chroma, but want to improve. For key fill, I'll need SDI outputs and inputs. And which one would you recommend, Ultra Studio or HyperDeck? The... I. It depends on how it depends. It depends on what you want to. Um, uh, there's two things. There's one step between Chroma and and doing key fill, and that's doing a Luma. I know that sounds crazy, but if you understand what you're doing with Luma, you can get some very good keys out of it without you know. So basically, what you do is you raise all the blacks in your graphics by about fifteen percent, and if you do that, you're going to find that that uh, that you won't see it in the broadcast. Um, but you will be able, you have 15, uh, you know, 15% of the black to just key into it. And you can get the chroma, you're probably, what you're probably noticing with chroma is the jagged edges along curves. Uh, any kind of curve, any angle, anything, the lower uh, chroma sampling in the 422 will cause that to be a problem. Um, and so, uh, so that's something to kind of, you know, keep, you know, keep uh, conscious to. You can get a lot with Luma. As far as key fill out, um, you just want to decide how flexible. So an Ultra Studio means that you're choosing to buy a piece of software that's going to do key fill out like Presenter Pro or Softron or other things that are going to do key fill um, outputs. Um, the HyperDeck means that you're going to load those files into it and then play them out. The, the smaller hyper, the mini HyperDecks will have the key fill output, but they won't, you know, getting sound out of that means you have to de-embed and da, 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 da. so it's, it's, it's more complicated. Um, so uh, So anyway, so you want to kind of, Think about how you know how are you getting it into there. The HyperDeck works great, but it's pretty limited. Every time you want to load things in, if you want to keep on changing things um, during a show, it, it's pretty cumbersome. So I'd probably lean towards the HyperDeck and some kind of software um, that's going to do a key fill out. Um, again, you know, QLab, um, MIDI, you know, all, all those are pieces of software that that can do the key fill out. So think about how you know if you're going to use a software to do that, or you want it to just be a thing that connects to your um, to your to your uh, computer. Now, next question. Douglas Carmichael. Courtney, you mentioned the A10 Mini as being a better value than the capture card and an external switcher. Wouldn't the capture card be a better choice because it would work around that A10 gray issue? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, capture cards can have bugs too, you see. They could have the same gray issue. Uh, it's And the gray issue really only occurs when you power up the uh, ATEM or you connect it uh, to the USB bus. I haven't seen it happen in the middle of a show unless there's some dropout in the USB bus or there's some disturbance in the force. 
uh, inside your PC. So the gray the gray issue is so rare that it's not really a problem uh, once you're up and running. You know you know it when you see it and you recycle it, you you restart it and it goes away. So and eventually they will fix that bug. So with <laughs> with with the other stuff that the uh, ATEM brings, it's a much higher value. I wouldn't worry. I wouldn't sweat the gray screen thing. Yeah, and and by the way, I mean the gray screen is we've pretty much identified that it's connected to the number of requests between restarts. So if, you know, the the fix, you know, a lot of times the production way of approaching things is to just um, uh, fix things. <laughs> you know, like you just figure out, like, what are the steps? If I have to turn like this and then turn like this and then go like this, if I know that that will do it all the time, I just get good at doing that. And really the answer there is that if you start every day by restarting your ATEM, you'll never have the gray screen. Like, you know, if you actually restart your, your um, now it means you have to save it, save the state or do whatever you're going to do. Um, you're never going to have that problem. It's only when it's left there or you're making a lot of requests. So um, my my wife was actually capable, I, she has an ATEM now, <laughs> and she was capable of of getting it to happen inside of one day because she turns the camera on and off inside of Zoom all the time because she's used to working with vanilla Zoom and not having an, an ATEM. So she doesn't put a screen up, she just turns it off. And so she's turning it off on, on and off all the time. And it turns out you can activate that gray screen really fast if you do that. So if you're turning the Zoom on and off, Zoom video on and off, it's just not a behavior most of us do. So it was it was something that kind of exposed that it was just a number of requests that, that went through. Um, but if you restart regular, re relatively often, you're never going to have that. I think it's going to get fixed. <laughs> like, so I feel pretty confident that, that this is a, what happened was is that we, when it was, this is a great example of when you say something's happening, but you can't give specifics, things take a long time to fix for a, for a development. You know, if you go, oh, we know that it happens between 15 and 40 requests or between 20 and 50 requests or whatever, it's going to happen. That is way and and here's how to reproduce that without having to actually um you know wait for it to happen uh that makes it much faster and i think that when when we got to that point in in figuring this out uh i think all the gears will start to turn now <laughs> so so because now it's now it's something that can be tested all right we're changing subjects um we're going to talk about uh, svv uh, as, as this is the silicon video uh what is it? Silicon video. I want to say, oh, I, yeah, Silicon Valley video. I'll, I'll get, I'll get good at it. Um, so Silicon Valley video, this is, I think of it as SVG because it's Silicon, uh, it's um, the um, uh, sports video group. So sports video group is what started this. So this is a sports video group and SVG is pretty well known for doing a lot of great conferences that are, you know, it's sports video group, but it's really live. You know, a lot of people in SVG are really just people that are in live video. So, so there's a lot of these little conferences that have not little, but you know, 500 people that are coming together for these conferences where the CTOs show up or other things and talk about where they're going and what they're planning. So SVG has been around for a long time and there's been a lot of pressure um, to um, look at corporate video, enterprise video, um, the kind of things that a lot of us do uh, more carefully because our industry is growing faster. <laughs> you know, so our industry is growing faster than than broadcast. And so there's been a lot of pressure to do that. So SVG really looked at that um, and looked at the possibility of doing a doing an event. Um, you know, I've been kind of in discussion with them about it over the last uh, six months or whatever to, to, to kind of think about that. Um, and they put on this this um, conference and I'll, I'll see if I can show it to you. Well, the first thing I'll show you is 
Um, I've got a couple photos here to show you. Um, and there's a couple things that happen that are kind of cool. Uh, there is a, there's visits um, uh, that you get to do. So the for some of us, we're, we're able to go to a couple things before the show. So there's like kind of tours and SVG does this a lot too. So there's these little tours that you go to. So we, we visited um, EA. So EA Sports has their own studios. And so I'll show you a couple of photos. I'm a little, I'm probably not going to show the control room photos because I, we're going to try to get them on. Uh, uh, Joseph Lynch, who runs EA Studios, is an old friend of mine. And so we got to talk a little bit and I think we'll get to, uh, get to, uh, get to have them on, but I'll show you a couple of the set shots anyway. Um, so here's, here's EA Sports. Um, so this, what's interesting about it, uh, a couple of things that we learned while we were there um, was that they built the whole thing because they have to flip these studios. And, and it was the same thing that, that I've talked about a lot is that you, um, what they realize is they're going to do all these events in all these remote locations and they have to build a kit and they have to go out there and they have to build a set and they throw the set away and then they do it again and again and again. And they're just setting, you know, as I mean, Joe said, literally just setting cash on fire, you know, so, so they're setting cash on fire when they do this. And so they built this great studio. And what's interesting about the studio is because they have to use it for a lot of different shows. They, um, they, everything that has a logo in that studio is on a screen so they can flip all those logos, you know, really, really fast to the other show that they're going to do. So they can have a setup inside of their kit. Um, they're using a Ross, I think, a, you know, a couple Ross, um, switchers and, they can flip, they hit a button and they just kind of flip the whole set into another another look. Um, let me see if I can get my keyboard in the right place. Um, this is another, so basically this is one side of the set. If you turn 60 degrees, you get a different set. So this is a very multi-purpose, this was a conference room. <laughs> like this was a conference room and some meeting rooms uh, that they tore out um, and made available during, I think it was during COVID or right before, either right before COVID or during COVID, they just had a lot of space. <laughs> so they, so they, they built these out because EA went from not doing a lot to doing, uh, you know, six shows a, a week or something like that, or six, uh, yeah, a really, really busy uh, during COVID because there was no other sports. So um, so this was a really great opportunity for them to kind of kind of move forward. So you'll see this, it's kind of the brick wall industrial look there. Um, a little the cool thing about the the uh, table there, there's your, um, you know, our, it's a slightly bigger version of what Mitch and I use uh, for the, um, you know, for the for the talent there to have um, both be able to do talk back and, and so on and so forth. And underneath that, of course, is their monitors so they can look down and see, you know, a variety of information um, that's there. So, and then, and then this is a separate room, but they've got a little green screen in there and they've got a place where the gamers can kind of hang out. So this was kind of the, um, so kind of, uh, you know, shows you a little bit about their production. I, of course I shot wide shots so you can see kind of the lighting. You can see that, you know, this is the grid that we talk about a lot, um, you know, up, up above. So, so this is, um, you know, this is, this is how, once you start building that studio, this is what you want to, you want to think about. And again, you can see that the logo down here, is something they can swap out. Um, it all has a certain look. Now, one of the things they said is for other shows, they now have the ability to kind of wrap this with another look um, as needed. Um, so they have kind of just a way that you kind of pin things up to it and it'll just change the whole look of it as well. So they've made it very, uh, very, very flexible. It's a really, really efficient. And again, I'm really excited to hopefully get them on at some point to talk about it because super efficient studio um, uh, put together. And if you have questions about any of this stuff, go ahead and raise your hand. Um, as we uh, as we go forward, um, but uh, let, let me go ahead and uh, the next thing that we did, and I can't, I wasn't allowed to take any photos of the next one, but I can talk about it. Um, so the next one we went to is Dolby. Um, this is just a representative photo <laughs> of what we were talking about, and what we were what Dolby had a a demo of HDR, and it was 
brutal. Like it was just the most brutal. So what they had was they were showing us the, you know, I've worked, I do a lot of work in HDR. And so I'm, I'm usually living between one. So standard dynamic range is a hundred nits. Okay. And that's just a, a, a measure of brightness. Um, I work in about a thousand to 2000 nits, depending on the project. So, you know, we, we usually grade to a thousand nits and then, and then we, um, you know, can expand it from there to, to, to up to 2000 nits. And so they, they would do that. They would say, here is something. And they'd look, we'd look at something that looked totally fine at a hundred nits. And then they go, well, here's what it looks like at, at a thousand nits. And they'd show it to you. Oh, that looks better. But they had a 4,000 nit, um, they had a 4,000 nit uh, a screen there and they said, and this is what it looks like at 4,000 nits. And then you could barely, you could barely look at the 1,000 nits and you definitely, I mean, the one, the 100 nits just looked like mud. Like it was, and, and it, and they hadn't changed anything other than what your reference point was. So then suddenly you saw a 100 nit that looked fine a second ago and a 4,000 nit that looked, you know, and it was interesting, the they did point out that, you know, the sun is like a million nits or whatever. And so, and when you look at a wall, like it was, what was interesting is that, that um, the, we were, they, they, they went out and started sampling things. Like they, I guess there's a little tool that they have that they can point at surfaces and it'll tell you how many nits that surface is. And they said, well, you can't, when you say you can't, people can't have an extended time where they're looking at you know, 4,000 nits or 10,000 nits or whatever, they, they showed a wall like in an alley and they were like, we measured this, this is 9,000 nits. <laughs> the wall is 9,000 nits. Like, like we're used to looking at a lot of nits. And so um, I will say that that it it shifted, like you could feel your, like it, we were watching it, they made a short film with uh, black magic cameras. And, um, uh, but they made a short film and it was, what was fascinating was when it went to the bright area, you could feel your irises just go, you know what you don't feel when you're watching most tv you know so uh it was it was what was and what was interesting is that it looked sharper because the the with more contrast it actually at 1080p it just looked the the image looked sharper than it did before so and more 3d like you felt like you you saw depth that wasn't necessarily there so it was a really fascinating demo so that that happened the day before um this is the um let me uh, cut back to this uh, this is, um, let's see, this is what it looks like when you're, when you're there. So SVG, uh, so a part of it is a small expo and I'll show a couple things that I noted. I didn't take a picture of every booth there. I probably could have, there was, there was only 12 or 15 booths, but, um, and it's nice. I, I like little booths, um, so that I can, I can, um, move from one to the next, but it is hard to see what's going on. So it's about 500 people that showed up, um, you know, for this. Um, and, uh, this is the beginning of it. So this is kind of what it looked like in the, in the scene. So you had a little screen up front. Um, I thought the lighting worked pretty well. Of course, I go to these things, not just for the content, but I'm looking at how they run the event. So you'll see a couple of me like doing research. I take pictures of everything. Um, but uh, we were sitting sitting in the back here. And um, and so you can uh, kind of see the layout. They had like five seats up there to, to talk. Um, here's the Here's the lighting grid because that's what I do. <laughs> so, so there's the there's there's kind of your lighting. Um, here's kind of the widest shot of what this looks like. This is in the computer history museum um, that's that's there. Um, and uh, and so this is this is I guess they have a theater there, which is it's very nice. I would definitely do an event here again. Um, here's some of the close-ups of the, of the lights because that's what I do. And, you know, there's the and, and there's the projector, um, so you can see what's there. Um, so so that and this is all kind of pre-built into that system. Uh, they were using two uh, Blackmagic six Ks, <laughs> so with uh, with with B four lenses on them um, to uh, to shoot it. So one wide, one one close up. 
um, the uh, uh, here's the if you're wondering, you know, this is a pretty typical like in the room event production without like a lot of live streaming. Um, just just recording and so on and so forth. This is pretty much what you see in most places. So you'll see the kind of the the gack that's all there, and then they just put up some uh, some curtains around it. You've got a couple fins for the wireless, and you know everything just kind of works. Um, I did get out to the you know we were looking out here, and um, uh, this is uh, this is the clear the new Clearcom chat. Um, uh, this is the their um, the new uh, FreeSpeaks. And uh, it's very shiny. Just in case you're like as someone who's used FreeSpeaks for ten years, uh, this the new one I hadn't seen, and it was very it was very shiny looking. Um, it uh, it's five five G, um, and the challenge, uh, and we talked about it there, is that the five G just doesn't get through a lot of things. So if you're looking for high density, um, you know, belt packs, then uh, the five G makes a lot of makes a lot of sense. So if you want like a hundred belt packs inside of a small studio or inside of a small a space. Um, they work, or fifty of them, or whatever. They they work really well. If you're trying to get through a long distance or try to figure out a lot of things, they may, they may not be the right solution. So one of the things we were talking about is they're they're kind of looking at um, finding ways to use the 1.9, um, you know, in another form factor, you know, in this form factor because the form factor is really nice. Um, you know, a lot of lot of good stuff there. Uh, we had a lot of good talks. They have um, uh, one of the things we discussed with Clearcom was that uh, you know they have they now have an agent IC for the Mac and PC um, that's licensed, you know, that's licensed out so you can open it. That was, it was always mobile before it was just iOS. Um, so, um, so they have, they have that for their eclipses and we're going to probably bring them on to talk a little bit more about all of those solutions uh, in the not too distant future. We had a good conversation um, there. I know, I know a lot of guys there. <laughs> so, so anyway, so we, uh, we had a good conversation there, but I think that we're going to have them come on and talk a little bit more about it. Um, this is the, uh, I talk a lot about this um, when people say, well, how do I do KVM? This is KVM at scale. Like this is the uh, so IHSE, and and I I kind of want I thought it'd be useful to show what these look like. And and what's important here is to see that this is modular right here. So you define what you want in there, um, and uh, and so that that is kind of a you know modular setup. Oh, I want this. You you can give them the kind of the breakout, and these cards come in and out. Um, so what you what do you want to have go in? What do you want to have go out? Um, you know, to connect those. So they're showing a couple different options here. So this is like when you talk about like KVM, um, you know, this is, you know, routing, routing all of this, but, but the, the, this is the big game when it comes to KVM. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, I, I, but they're not very big, they're not big devices, but when I, when we work in production facilities, we see them relatively often. Um, also had a great conversation with, um, with CalREC, um, so this is a, and I, I don't have the brand uh, the, or the, the model number, but this is a really cool setup. Um, so CalREC has, the, CalREC is in about 80% of the broadcast trucks in the United States. And of course, because SVV is, is connected to SVG, a lot of these folks, you know, kind of came over, um, you know, from that. And, um, but CalREC uh, has this, so that, that server box is actually basically three mixers. So that that little box over there, that that two U is is basically three digital mixers, five hundred and twelve inputs, five hundred and twelve outputs. Um, it, it can uh, well, it's capable of that. Um, and then it, and then the channels that are managing, depending on what you license, is twenty, forty, eighty, one hundred and twenty uh, channels that you can work with. It's got a ton of DSP built into it, 
and it can run completely from that laptop so that it is really designed. I mean, we've seen this with Yamaha and Behringer and so on and so forth, but these Calrex, um, you know, basically are really just built to be run remotely. And they have, um, this version will do 5.1, uh, the bigger version will do Atmos, um, the, um, but you can also tie via U VPN, you can tie those, um, those controllers that you see there into them remotely as well. There's some limitations to it um, as far as some of the feedback stuff to those to those mounts, but um, but the the main thing is is that we're looking. I mean, I'm looking for some remote <clears throat> some, some remote mixing solutions, and the Calrec. Uh, you know, this is the kind of the high. We we kind of consider Calrec kind of the high end uh, solution um, to make this actually work. So um, anyway, so this is this is something we spent some time on. We think we're going to be able to get them in uh, in about a month to show uh, to show what they're doing. And uh, we might even try to play with a mix of doing a show for a week or two or something like that in, in the Calrec. Um, so uh, we'll see if we'll see if uh, people are up for that. But if people are willing to experiment with it over a weekend or whatever, we're gonna we're gonna kind of play with that. So the, expect us to spend a little bit more time looking at it. It is pricey. It's not in the world in our world. This is in in Calrec's world. It's, it's relatively inexpensive. You know, their mixers usually start at about a quarter million dollars each. This is this starts at about twenty five thousand, <laughs> so so it's not it's not a uh, it's not the same same uh, cost structure as the X thirty two or the or the uh, Q L one, but there's an enormous amount of power in DSP, and you know it's going to be rock solid because it's um, there. So we I had a good good conversation with them, kind of talking through that that stuff there, um, and then uh, here is uh, let's see this is well Steve Steve Wozniak was was uh, uh, you know did did the closing um, discussion and he's really I mean you really get how he got there. Like he was talking about how he learned how to do build computers is I guess there was all the drawings for all these new computers and every computer he would redesign it from scratch. Like every new computer that came out, he'd look at the drawings and then he'd try to build them and then he'd try to, you know, rebuild these things when he was a kid, just putting them all back together so he'd understand how they worked. Then he was constantly reading all the manuals and putting all the stuff together to figure it all out. Um, and it was funny. He would, he said there was, there was a couple of funny things that he's, I mean, he said a lot of funny things, but the one of the funny things he said is, is that I came up with a new idea, you know, um, about once a year, um, you know, about, an, I'd have a new invention about once a year and Steve Jobs would come over and, and make money with it. <laughs> like, and that's what kept us going for a long time. You know, it's like Steve would, he goes, I'd come up with something and then Steve Jobs would come over and go out and make money with it. And then we, it would keep us going for a little while longer. And I guess they did that. I, I always thought that they kind of started in 1976, but it sounded like they'd been doing that for like 10 years, you know, like it was, you know, so he'd been doing, uh, you know, they've been doing it for, you know, a long time of building the blue box and building the other things and building all these other, other pieces, but they were like, they weren't really a company, you know, it was just kind of like them putting it together. So, um, and then he said, you know, he was, uh, he, he's, it was really hard for him because they, they had an investor that came in that wanted to put money in, but they said he had to quit his job at, at Hewlett Packard. He's like, I'm working on a state-of-the-art calculator. <laughs> like, how can I leave? You know, how can I leave? I'm working on the, I'm working on the best calculator in the world. You know, and he was very, uh, it was very hard for him to, to separate. The other thing that I think you know, they were talking about, um, they were talking about education, and he said it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you, the information that you tell kids. What matters is that if they care about it, they're going to learn it. <laughs> he goes, if they, if they really, if they're inspired and they care about the subject, you know, they'll figure it out. Like they'll, he goes, you know, they don't need the information. They don't need you to give them the information. They need to give, they need you to give them the inspiration, you know, to, to, um, to learn. And, and he said, you know, and, and so it was just a, and, he, and 
he did mention, I guess in San Jose, he, in his old school, he used to teach com basic computer programming. And I was like, how much pressure is on the kids to be taught by Steve? If, if Steve Wally, I can't teach you how to, how to program. Um, anyway, so, um, uh, the, uh, so that was, um, so Steve, Steve was a lot of fun, uh, to, to have there. He was, it was really kind of a, a, a rambling, but I, and, and here's the thing that I noticed is he had a Q and A at the end. Some people asked him a couple of questions and what I was left with very quickly was, um, I could have just had the Q and A. Like it was great to hear some of his backstory, but I didn't really need him to talk about stuff. He was so interesting when people started asking him questions. I was like, why don't we just have him up here? And, and we had to cut off for some reason. There was some cutoff for timing or whatever. And I was like, we could have just left him up there answering questions. For, I mean, if he was willing to, he seems like the kind of guy that would just answer questions. But if he was willing to just let him answer questions for an hour and a half, because <laughs> it's, it's Steve, it's Steve Wozniak. And so anyway, so it was, it was a, 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 a lot of fun. Um, See what else we got here. Andy and I were there, <laughs> so, so so Andy and I, um, we uh, I talked about um, uh, I talked about digital first events. Um, so in the morning, and then and then I interviewed Andy at um, for fifteen minutes. So we talked. We actually did, and I think I've got some photos here. I, I didn't quite get them all in. I had a little bit of a. As you may have noticed at the beginning of the day, I, I woke up this morning with a fire, <laughs> in, in a fire, production fire that I had to put out. So I didn't get quite everything um, put in there, but I, I think that uh, Michael Slade captured a couple of me up there. I'll try to find them for you. Um, but uh, yeah, so so I think that, and so then and we, we talked to Andy about, you know, Zoom's production and everything else. And then we talked about them. I was a, hosting a metaverse um, talk at the end of the day. So so we had a couple couple things there. Um, it was an interesting overall. I, I would say that it was a it was a, it's a really interesting um, uh, uh, conference. I think it's going to go a long way. You know, I think that there's a lot of uh, interest in there's a lot of interest by the vendors vendors definitely because they really and that's what you have to. I mean, sometimes you can just do it like we do it, which we're interested in the in the subject matter. But having vendors interested is really useful because they have you know they want to spend money. <laughs> to, to actually make these events possible because this this event was free it was all paid for by by the those tables and so um we saw b and h there and all these other vendors and everything else and they're very interested in this market um and svg already has a lot of those contacts and and so um and it was it was a who's who i mean i saw friends from apple and facebook and google and you know all the you know all these event the 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 event um the people who run all these events for all these, all these companies, I wasn't sure if they'd out, they would actually show up, you know, like they were, um, the, you know, but the folks that I knew, I, I wasn't sure that I was like, is this going to be just a bunch of folks that are just kind of trying to get into it or trying to find the next job? And it really, I mean, it really did turn out to be a lot of the people who make decisions in Silicon Valley about production were all in the audience and all looking there. And so it was, it was a great, this gets back into what people bring up, I will admit, um, the hallway discussions were really useful, <laughs> you know, so you know, and hanging out, talking to folks about it, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, good. And but it, it gets into the again. The point is, is that we want to figure out a way that people who can make it can have those hallway discussions and have those discussions. And when I this is what I was talking about for digital first, it's just that we have to make sure that the audience online, who will be much larger. Um, needs to be able to have that great experience too. Like needs to have not maybe not the same experience, but an excellent experience that they want to come back over and over and over again. I definitely think the folks that it came to this one definitely had the experience that they want to come back. I mean, I, I think that they they really felt like it was necessary and good. But I think that um, so that's what I was talking about because I think the digital first makes sense in the sense that there are people who can, 
and want to come back and they want to have lunch and they want to have the drinks and do all the things that they do and have those hallway conversations. What I did most of the time, which is what I usually do, I, I can report a little bit on what's in there, but what happens is, is that when everyone goes into the, into the, into the plenary um, to talk, I go out and talk to all the vendors <laughs> because then I can, I can, I have time to myself and I, and I can have conversations and I can talk for a long time and figure things out. And so I spend a lot of time with CalREC and, and ClearCom and a couple other folks to, to really, you know, get the information that I needed. The, um, we did run into a lot of people who watch office hours that, that you don't see every day. Like people were just coming up to me about every 15 minutes <laughs> like saying, wow, I really like office hours. So no pressure, but, but it's like network folks and production folks are definitely watching the show, <laughs> definitely watching the show because they all, uh, they all said hi. So, um, so anyway, so I think that, um, there is definitely a crossover between what we're doing and what they're doing. That's, that's, um, I think pretty interesting. Yeah. Go ahead, Courtney. You mentioned Metaverse that you spoke uh, either on a panel or, or did a, a, a segment on it. Did did the summit itself appear in the Metaverse? Was it hosted in the Metaverse? Or it wasn't not? even. It wasn't even streamed. You know. So I the oh, uh, uh, I mean, when I signed up for this and and people found out that it wasn't being streamed anywhere, I got I got I don't know how many Discord and texts I got of oh the irony. <laughs> <laughs> that I, the first one I actually show up at, it's not, no, they're going to, they recorded it and they're going to post it. So we'll, we'll make sure that all of you get to see all those, um, those discussions, but no, it wasn't. It, I think a lot of it was obviously discussion, discussing the ideas. One thing I will say that I really like about SVV and I, I assume that SVG is the same is that there weren't multi-tracks. There was just one big, there's one big room. We're going to, I, my, 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 what I'd like to see more of is longer, longer sessions and less of them. So that we can really dig into them a little bit more because they were like a half an hour each, you know, and so you just just kind of scrape across the surface. But having it all in one room is so much nicer. Like we're all in the same conversations when we walk out into the hallway. We all saw the same things. If we're inspired by something, we're all talking about it. And I saw this with Ted um, a long time ago when I went to a Ted Ted Africa, and I and I really felt like, wow, this is this is a much better experience. Um, I think that. Uh, that this was the, this was this is great that way, and I hope they keep that design. I, I hate I hate tracks. <laughs> Go ahead, uh, Sky. I just got to do a behind the scenes about uh, uh, Steve at one point, and he started in that same geographic area in the homebrew club, and it was it. it yeah. This feels like at the beginning of of you know personal computers and things. So I it, I would be fascinated just to have him you know reminisce and talk about current struggles, but also how it's kind of the same just. 40 years later, the other, but you, you're, what I'm hearing you say is that in person created a nutrient rich environment. And so how do you get that in this two dimensional well, media? And what versus, I talked about is yeah. what I talk about here all the time is that yeah. we, should, we should have those in-person events. We should just make sure we should just take the speakers and put them in another room so that when they're talking, you know, the big, the big point that I, that I make, I make here and that I made there was that if we just take the speakers and we put them in another room, they can be in the same building. But if we just put them in another room and put them in front of a bunch of screens and they and they can still talk to that audience. But the reality is we just did a we did a whole bunch of sessions. There were almost other than Steve Wozniak, there were no questions uh, just because of how tightly packed it was um, that there was no reason not to put them. I mean, I guess it's nice to have people on a stage. It's it's kind of creature comforts. But and this one's small enough that you didn't need iMag because only 300 people. But one if you had gotten much larger than what it was there. You would have you would have immediately had to switch over to iMag, and as soon as you switch to iMag, everyone's looking at a screen anyway. Like it doesn't matter anymore. 
you know, once you go over about 500 people, it is, you're going to switch over to, there, there's enough people further, far enough back that, and this one, to be honest, would have benefited from iMag because we're sitting on a, on a, on a uh, stage. And when you were in the back, you were far enough back that everyone was really small. <laughs> so, so at that point, you, you really could, you could have switched this to iMag and then everyone would have been, look, I, as soon as you put big iMag, iMag is the, those big um, returns that you see up there by the stage for those of you who don't do events. Um, and uh, so as soon as those go up, everyone just looks at those. Like they never look down again at the stage. And that's what people don't get when they say, oh, they have to be on the stage. I'm like, do they? <laughs> like, do they go? Like, as soon as you put those screens up, we're all paying attention to the screens. Now that you want to have them there so that the speaker, so you might want a bunch of the speakers to be there. But we also give up a, a huge number of people that would have been easy. They brought one person in virtually um, that they brought one person in to talk on the screen. Um, and the problem was, is they brought it in over SRT because it was more production ready and going to be higher quality. But the problem was, is low, it's higher latency. So it feels like that satellite connection you know, that, that you have there. So you can't have, you can have them present like, hey, we're going to throw this off to this person and let them talk. You can't have interaction as soon as you do SRT or Zixi or any of those other things that, that will give you a more, more um, better fidelity in the video, but they're not going to give you the, the, the immediacy that you get with Zoom or, or other, other platforms like that. So, so anyway, so I think that it was, um, uh, so I think that putting that, putting that person somewhere else um, and still letting them interact with the audience. They can still say you in the blue shirt, you in the whatever, you still have that interaction, but it simplifies your audio pipeline. It simplifies your video pipeline and it allows you to make sure what I talked about in the, in the talk is that when you do that, it means the folks in the plenary room are in the front row, the front people in the front row are in the front row, right? <laughs> and the people in the back row are now more in the front row because now they have something that's the same for everybody. If you had an overflow room, front row, if this event, where I think this event wants to go or where all these events want to go is that there is, there's not an SVV West Coast or an SVV East Coast. There's just an event and it occurs in New York and in Silicon Valley at the same time and maybe in London at the same time. And everybody has the same experience and the speakers are coming in on those, on those things. And it's not like in one, you feel like you're the outside and the other one you feel on the inside. Everybody has the same experience and we can have watch parties in Cape Town and watch parties in somewhere else that people can have in their offices. And we interact with them all as equals. And if you're watching on your phone, I'm interacting with you as an equal because I'm better lit. I have a better audio. I have, you know, I'm able to see everybody um, and see the information. And, and it, it was great that we did this on the, on the week that Tony Robbins did an event for 1.4 million people. Because, <laughs> you know, like he did, you know, Tony Robbins did an event for 1.4 million people from his living room in or from his from a room in his house in Hawaii <laughs> like like so so there is a um you know so that was a great backup that we were able to kind of talk to and the problem is and one of the things we talked about on the session that I was in is that the big the big big game is going to be digital events not digital first events but digital events like Tony Robbins going to 1.4 million people from his living room, uh, other people doing these virtual events, like what we do. This is a this is a digital event, right? There's no there's no audi live audience or anything else. This is the big game. You know, this is going to be we're gonna, now that Tony Robbins hit 1.4 million. This is kind of like no one hit a uh, billion dollar valuation, and then they just started going to two billion and three billion and four billion valuations. It's a mindset. 
once Tony Robbins hit 1.4 million, we're probably 12 to 18 months from 10 million. And once we get to 10 million, we're bigger than broadcast. You know, well, we, but there are events happening that are bigger than broadcast. And the idea that CES has 100,000 people, you're like, ooh, that feels really small. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, and it used to feel big. And now, now it feels like this cute little thing that you were doing before. And the problem is that in a digital event, the audience is going to get used to having all that interaction directly to them. If you go to a, a hybrid event where the audience, where you feel like you're in the back, where the cameras aren't, you know, aren't really directed, people aren't going to value those. And, you know, one of the things that we, the big thing that I talked about in my talk that I did was, you know, what I pay attention to a lot in events is how people feel. How do they feel in the event? Do they, um, how do they feel like the conversation is important, that the brand's important, that the ideas are important, and all of that is driven by how they feel about themselves. How do they feel about themselves in the event? Do they feel connected? Do they feel important? Do they feel heard? Do they feel seen? And if they feel those things, then, then all those other things become important. If they don't feel important, then the event doesn't feel important. And that, and when you start paying attention to things like sequential attendance, which is, do they show up four events in or four days in, um, those numbers drop really fast when we don't get it right. Um, next question. Next question coming into us from... Sky Gleason in Seattle, Washington. Who is the summit's audience? Corporate communications, broadcasters, feature film? Yeah, go ahead, Sky. You've kind of answered all of that. And but this was I, I put in the questions because it was early days. I I am curious about uh the 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 feature film audience, obviously, but um yeah, you kind of answered most of the questions. Yeah, the um uh the uh, what was I going to, yeah, the, um, the, I think that the, it was all corporate. I mean, that's that was the goal. There was a lot yeah. of broadcasters there, but there was, it was really focused on the cor the corporate teams that are putting these things together and, and how they're, you know, figuring them out and what they're doing. And they talked a lot about, they talked about 2110 in the, in the, in the uh, workflow. They talked about, um, you know, so there was a, some 21 to 10 discussions. There was, um, some, you know, obviously some metaverse discussions, some digital background discussions. So there was a couple different, um, a couple of different discussions there that were pretty that were pretty interesting of, of how people are thinking about those. Um, but we saw some folks that are doing some big corporate too, <laughs> you know, like Accenture was there, and there's a lot of other folks that are doing some stuff. And again, I mostly, as a representative, office hours was like, "Hey, you should come on the second hour." <laughs> so I just walk, walked around like, "Let's bring you all in." Well, I'm and realizing so we'll that you you had to wear something other than cargo shorts because you were in person. Oh my gosh, I had to wear a monkey suit. No, I call them, <laughs> I call them monkey suits. There, I had to have a dress jacket and, and a dress great. shirt on. You look and, great. Yeah, so, you you so, dress up good, sir. Yeah, yeah. So so anyway, <laughs> I do not enjoy that part uh, at all. Um, anyway, so um, so anyway, the further I get yeah, get away from cargo pants and. And a flannel is is, is uh, the, the less comfortable I am. Uh, next question. From Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. They had live Q&A during the keynote. Don't tell Alex. <laughs> Just for a second. I will say that for the most part, other than not having very well-formed questions, in my opinion, um, they the questions for, for Steve Wozniak were short. Like people, and they were very, it was, it was good as from a wetware perspective that they managed that really well. They They said, Listen, we're going to go through these questions. You got to be fast. Just ask the question. We don't need any build up to it or any other thing that that you have there. Still, people did the things that you know that with, even within that. I want to ask two. I have two questions. I have a two part question. I have a multi part question. So people have these things that they want to jump in rather than just asking a clear. This is this is why I think that I still think that text is better. There is no question that was asked 
by the audience that was better, especially when they're when they're told to be fast and there's not going to be any back and forth or anything else. Um, other than expediency, like they don't have a system to do that. I would have much rather had Mokana in there and everyone asking questions in Mokana in the room and then voting them up and down so that we got the questions that everybody wanted as opposed to, you know, the people who that happened to get, that happened to stand up and be called on. So I didn't feel like that was a, an improvement um, of that of that process. I think that, you know, it, it, I think future ones will be better. So anyway, uh, next next question. Nigel DeSalle from Austin, Texas. Nigel asks, do you get a sense from the people you met of how much impact Office Hours is having? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like that was um, was a little affronting about how many people were walking up to me from all kinds of um, corporate, broadcast, um, network, you know, folks were coming up again every 15 minutes just going, oh, I watch Office Hours or, oh, I, you know, I, I really picked up a bunch of stuff. We built our studio based on what we saw in Office Hours. Um, we, uh, you know, we, you know, I don't get to see all of them, but I watch them. This is interesting. A lot of people were like, oh, I watch them all over the weekend or I listen to them all over the weekend um, is a pretty common, was a common note um, of that process. Um, so it was, I was... Uh, because, you know, we see who we see, we see who's talking in the pan, in the event chat, we see who's in discord, we see who's there and you don't see the, the, all the other people that are, that are in the, you know, in watching just the YouTubes later and so on and so forth. I was, it was, um, way more than I expected. Um, Hey Alex, did any of them say they were time shifting? Like did, were they using the indexes and looking for things in there or did you explore any of that with the people who, you know, I didn't, time shifted. I didn't ask about, they just, they mostly just said they were listening to the, the shows afterwards. Understood. So there yeah. was no, they weren't really talking about what they were. They, we didn't, I didn't ask them that. I, I, I think I, a, a lot of it was because, um, both because I was on stage, but primarily because of office hours, most people were coming up to me to talk about office hours. Um, I was, uh, in a lot of conversations all at one time. Every time I walked through where there was a lot of people, there was just a lot of people coming up and talking about um, about that. And they're less about what my stage, less about my stage appearance and more about office hours. Like, you know, they just want to come over and say hi and say that they watch office hours. And so it was a, it was, it was interesting. Like I didn't expect, I didn't expect that much. Um, I, I expected to get a lot from being on the stage. I didn't expect a lot as, as much input from, uh, from that. So yeah, uh, next question. Next question coming in from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Were there any big broadcasters that approached you about office hours and expressed interest in how you're able to achieve such a high level of quality? Uh, it, it wasn't. There were some big broadcasters that did talk to us about it and said it was useful. We didn't talk. They didn't talk a, a lot about that um, specifically, although a handful of folks did say, you know, when I they they use office hours uh so the couple people that talked about the fact that they use office hours to when people in their organization say that you can't have a high quality video um you know over zoom they use office hours as the example and that seems to be pretty common <laughs> like off, we we become kind of the uh the the you know the 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 proof of like it doesn't have to look that way like and and you know and so i think that that was that's definitely something that um that popped up uh that popped up a lot you know, so, um, so that, that they, that people are using us as an example. And that's why we push so hard. I mean, that's why we push hard for our audio, why we push hard for our video is because we are, you know, hopefully showing people that it doesn't have to be the way, it doesn't have to be bad audio and bad video and all the things that are there. It's, it, it really can be something different. It's not the platform that does that. It's, it's lack of uh, participant attention. Uh, go ahead, Alex. 
I just fully expected some people to be a little salty about how uh, th that uh, office hours have spent a lot less money than these broadcasters, and you you look so much better. I, it's a matter of, there's a lot of jealousy there. You know, we were um, we did a, a another um, a Michael Krasny show with uh, Larry Larry Diamond yesterday, and one of the things that he said in the prep was that you know he's on this guy's a I mean he's on a lot of shows for CNN and a lot of other folks. And he said, no one's ever asked me about the audio. Because <laughs> like Shannon was being very specific about that. He's like, no one ever asked about the audio. They always try to make sure my lighting's right and my camera's right, everything else. And, and I was like, we, we care. <laughs> like, like, we care about that. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I hate to ring our own bell, but um, you know, we've talked before about this being one of a kind, that there's nothing else out there like this. Do you think people are catching on and thinking, wow, maybe we should be doing something like this for our application? I think that they're thinking more about how they can get on our show. <laughs> so, so I think I think that's, that's more of a, I don't think that they're looking at how to rebuild the system right now. Um, but they, uh, uh, so I think that I was pretty successful at meeting a lot of people that I think we're going to bring on to the second hours to, to talk about stuff. So, um, you know, to kind of keep moving forward. I think that that, I, I think that they, they looked at it and I think it, for some of them, it just looks like it's way heavier than they can, they can't quite imagine how that gets done. You know, like it's, you know, every, especially every day. So someone went off like, I can't believe you're still doing this for every single day. Like, how does that work? Uh, go ahead, Alex. What I still don't understand, and because you still see this, is that people are still using Skype on major, like major broadcasters still using you know, Skype. And I don't get it's it. It's just because it works. You know, we, we, um, you know, it, it works. They know how to do it. They put it together. They don't understand. They just don't understand how the other options are available. And we talked to some folks, talked to quite a few folks that while they're looking at what we're doing, they still haven't used ISO. You know, they haven't used Zoom ISO. They're still screen scraping out of HDMIs. And this is, these are big companies, you know, and they're, um, they're still screen scraping out of it. And, and, you know, so of course, uh, every time I saw that, I was going, dragging Andy over and going, this is the person that not to talk to that person. So, so anyway, so, um, you know, we, let's, let's get this fixed. So, uh, so I think it's mostly just people not knowing what's possible, like what's, what else is there. And I think that, um, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're waiting to see, you know, as the interface for Zoom ISO settles, I think we're going to spend a lot of time trying to build learning tools for folks so that they understand how easy it is to get off the ground and get moving. You know, go ahead, Sky. Well, and at that level too, the engineer is going to use what they know and that why fix what ain't broke? It, it's, it, well, and it's also like, big, well, they get paid to do a thing and they don't get paid to be experimental or creative. It's get it done, make it happen. So yeah, to, and, and, to Alex's question of, I don't understand. It's like, well, because it's not your job. <laughs> it's well, their job. <laughs> and, and it's, it's one of those things that like a lot of times you get to buy stuff once a year and you have to prioritize what you're going to buy. Like in a large corporate facility, you know, you get to make acquisition requests every quarter or every year. Um, it goes into the budget. Um, and then when it happens, it's like, do I get, do I upgrade something that's already, you know, no one's complaining about it? Or do I get something new and shiny that, that I need for, that will change something in the production? And so I think that's the thing you also deal with is they don't, they can't, unlike us, <laughs> they can't just buy it whenever they want to. There, you know, there's all this red tape that, you know, is required that might take six months to a year to put in. And again, it's it, especially when it's moving quickly, when it's changing all the time, they don't even know what to get. So they just kind of look at it that way and they just go, well, and, and there's just always, you know, limited number of options to kind of go, go forward. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I have a client who um, I recently did a show for and he uses, you know, a laptop pin farm. And uh, the 
we're doing a show and the people are coming in completely out of sync because he's pulling audio off of yeah. off of one. And uh, you know, we know the potential. Big company, big budgets, they right. don't have the um the mechanism to get through all the politics to make things happen, to, especially something that requires, uh, um, unfortunately, with the new pricing structures of ISO, uh, a, a subscription. So I just, I just told him, I said, listen, I'll buy you the license. I'll subscribe to it for you. We'll figure out a way to charge it for it. It'll be fine. And, right. and it's going to make things so much easier. Yeah. And, uh, but, but with big companies, sometimes it's, it's the classic story of the huge ship that's very hard to turn. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, next question. It's from Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois, asking, what was the audience response to a digital first talk at an in-person event? Interestingly enough, I mean, there was definitely some mention of the irony of, of the, pro, of, of the situation. Um, but, uh, but I think that, um, again, the, the hard part is, it was kind of a good example of that is that, you know, SVG really wants to move, you know, they're very aggressively moving into the future, but still, you know, you have the vendors and everything else that are used to, Hey, we want to make sure there's a lot of people here. (laughs) And so, you know, because that's, who's paying for that. And so I think that that was part of that, that process. But, um, but I think that it's hard to tell there hasn't been a a demo. I mean, there hasn't been a a poll yet, or I don't know what other, how they're going to follow up with people. But I can say that when, as, a, as I was talking, what I saw was a lot of heads nodding, you know, like, and I definitely had people come up over afterwards from some very, very large companies going, I'm really glad you said that, or I'm really glad you said, you know, this piece. And one of the things that got some more reaction than I expected, because I didn't have it in my talk, I was like, you know, I talked about what I talked about. And then at the very end, I wanted to make sure that to be clear that we have to decide when do we do a digital first event and when do we do just digital events? And I, you know, talked about the fact that if you're not constrained by time and space, how many times would you do this? You know, if, if you weren't trying to book a space and you weren't trying to figure out who, how to feed everybody, how often do you do these? Because we can be doing these all the time if we don't try to have people showing up because there's a logistics related to that. And that, that really struck up, um, 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 you know, kind of a nerve for a lot of people is that, you know, that we should be doing the digital first events should be happening. You know, they should be happening every year, every six months, every quarter, whatever that number, whatever that cadence is. Um, we need digital for, we want digital first events so that people have the opportunity to, to get together. Um, the, but there is an opportunity also to, um, to have these conversations in between, you know, all of these things where we don't have to have it 30 minutes. It can be an hour or two hours. And I think you're going to, um, we're probably going to build a partnership with with SVV um, to do things where they're a mixture of SVV and office hours, um, because I think that they're, it's a different market, and I think that it's interesting for us. So I think that we're actually, we overlap in about 30%, which is kind of a nice, healthy overlap between two organizations where they're kind of dealing with a, kind of a, a, tend to deal with these kind of larger solutions and and so on and so forth. And we're getting people into the into that process. And then we have some people that are doing the larger solutions and they have some people that are doing the kind of processes that we're doing. I think that there's a really interesting um, mixture between those. So you're probably going to see some partnerships over this year where we're partnering with SV, uh, SVV um, because I think the two of us are looking at many things the same way and they're more established in some areas than we are. And we're uh, probably a little ahead in some areas. And so that is a really great um, place to partner. And so we've been, um, I've had a lot of good conversations with Martin Porter, who, who runs SVG to, 
about that. And I think that there's a lot of interest from both sides to, to do that. Um, next question. From Bill Davis in San Diego and right here on our panel, at the conference, how many times did you hear the word hybrid? Not that many. I mean, a lot of the conversa- conversations were about, uh, you know, LED walls and, and 2110 and metaverse and everything else, our digital, our digital first events. Um, you know, they talked about it a little bit. Um, I will admit that I probably, my talk um, probably made the environment to talk about I- hybrid events um, pretty pretty um, unforgiving. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I kind of, you know, I, I uh, um, really talked about the fact that it was just very hard to get what, you, you know, hard to get the result that you're trying to get um, with a hybrid event. And you needed to move those speakers out of that room so they could, you know, if you really want to do a digital first event, but a hybrid event is going to put everybody in the back of the room. And I think I described it in a way that was probably clear enough that um, I didn't hear hybrid come up uh, or it came up relatively sheepishly after that. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, so, uh, so my, my mission was, uh, was successful. Go ahead, Bill. Well, I, th- that's what I was actually looking for. I was wondering whether they have moved through this or whether they were stuck thinking that's still the new thing because in these large-scale systems, they do move. I think your point about you know annual budgeting is really true. And you know I'm well, wondering how fast that part of the industry is moving through what they thought was the next stage out of the pandemic into the coming stage. Well, I, I basically just compared hybrids to blackberries. I was like, you know, they worked well and everyone was really connected to them, but eventually the iPhone came out and the flexibility and the scalability of the iPhone wiped the, wiped the blackberry out. And that's, what's going to happen. Um, next question. Alexander Knight, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, asking, did you receive audience pushback about digital first events with respect to the downsides of not having a physical in-person audience? If so, how did you respond? So I didn't because that's not what I said. <laughs> so I said, I, what, you know, what I talked about there was, was that a digital first event still has an audience. It still has an expo. It still has lunches. It still has all of those things. A digital first event is not, a, a digital event has no audience. A digital first event has everything that a physical event has, except that the speaker is no longer in the room. That's it. Like, like literally that's the only change. Because I think that that's the part that confuses people is I'm not saying that you get rid of all those things. I'm saying that you, that you simply have a physical event. You still have the hallway conversations and the expo and everything else. Um, you're just taking the speaker out of that, out of that area. And if you have a big enough event, it wouldn't matter anyway, because everyone would be looking at the IMAGs. So the thing is, is that you're not changing people's, you're changing people's experience by two or 3% in the room and massively changing it for folks online. And now you have this huge, and I think that I didn't say this in the, in the meeting, but I, I really think that the physical events will get bigger because the online experience is better because people are still going to see these as like, eventually I want to go to one of those. Like, you know, like I'm, I'm there, I'm really having a great time on the digital one. I, I, I can't get the visa right now. I can't get the flights right now, whatever, but eventually I'm going to go to one of those events. And if we keep making those digital events, these digital first events available in more cities at one time. So my big thing is I want to do, I want to do a digital first event about digital first events soon. <laughs> and but I want to do them by coastal or by, you know, in a couple different continents all at the same time so that we can show like that's the scale because I, I see these events happening. We're not going to have 30,000 people show up in one place. We're going to have 30,000 people show up in 60 locations and they're all going to have the same experience, you know, and they're going to have, because if you look at the tables, so you look at those little tables that I showed, um, 
see if I, I don't know if I know if I have a wide shot of one of the, yeah. So here, um, if you, I'm on the wrong computer. Um, if we, uh, let's see if I can go back here. I just want to show. So, you know, these are, you know, these are the tables. They're, they're a six foot table. Everybody had the same six foot table. There are reps from these companies in every, you know, most major cities and com countries and so on and so forth. So there's no reason why they can't have one of those little tables at all those locations. You know, so, you know, and it's actually, you know, so that they're able to spread that all out into those. And, and it's a lot, it's cheaper to have those little tables in 30 cities than it is with their local staff who's, you know, talking to the local vendors than it is to spend a million dollars at NAB. You know, like it, it is, so being able to have a spread out thing and having these spread out conversations um, is way less expensive. And, and it means that your local, um, your local reps are talking to your local uh, clients, you know, that, which also is useful. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah. So I guess what I'm, what I mean too is, because uh, I, I still hear this a lot and there are people that are very adamant about, we'll never, you'll never have the same experience that the, the the dynamic, the the vibe, the energy that you get of of having a face to face conversation with someone. There's no way to really get that in this type of event. So I'm guess I'm. But, but we're not, we're not arguing push. that. We're just saying we're just okay. saying you're, we're still gonna the people who can make it will make it. The, the, my argument is is that the people who are gonna make it are gonna make it. But how do we make make? The, but the digital audience is going to be ten times better and bigger if the if the efficiency of, of the online experience is half of the physical experience, but the number of people is 10x, then you're at 5x the impact. <laughs> like when you, when you think about ROI of, of putting out your content. So it doesn't have to be as good. It just has, but, but I think over time, we can make it a lot better. When I, some of the FMC events, that they did where they had like little mixers afterwards that um, that you could all hang out with. Those were fun. You know, are they the same as being in the hallway? No, but not all those people can make it. So we're cutting out, you know, we're saying, oh, it has to be in, in, in the room. But how do I tell Mickey that who can't get a visa in the time frame that's necessary to go to NAB? We need to make sure that that Mickey and my students in Rwanda and 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 Grant and all these other people that are all over the world and Hosmuk and, and, and our friends in, in South America and, and, and Javier and, you know, like, it, it, you know, getting in and out of the country or getting in and out of one of these things is not trivial if you're out of the country. And for many of us, we just don't have the budget and, and you know, to go in there and, you know, going to an event is not the, the $100 or $500 it is to get there. It's the $500 air ticket. It's the, um, you know, it's the $2,000 of hotel rooms. It is all, you know, it's a huge investment. So how do we make that more, you know, we can be uh, perfectionists about this, but how do we, you know, like we should all be physical, but it's that, that's not practical or possible. And, and so, so we have to look at how do we maximize the experience for that online audience, which is getting really big. You know, again, Tony Robbins did 1.4 million. You're going to see, you know, you know, I think that we could build digital first events with office hours and SVV or whatever that were a quarter million people, like, you know, like around the, around, you know, a quarter million person event that isn't in Vegas, you know, it's everywhere, you know, and there are, there's hubs, you know, that are happening first, it'll be two or three, but every, you know, my goal will be every year you see two or three more, <laughs> like we, we, we get two or three more cities and two or three more cities and a couple more continents. And before you know it, you know, three years from now, 
there's these huge events that are happening that are expos in all of those events, you know, and we keep the expo booths very simple um, and small so that they, you can just replicate them out, you know, and we minimize the impact that, that it re- is required by those folks. But now you're able to expand into a much larger market because every time you do a physical event, you are, you're excluding 99.9999999% of the market, of your addressable market. Not the world, we can talk about, of your addressable market can't make it to those events. Um, but digital first to, to the point that, that you're, the people who are talking to you, Alex, that's why digital first has to exist and not just digital events. The digital first event allows the people who want to come to the room and be in the room, have that experience, but still generate an incredible experience for the folks that can only come digitally, you know, and the folks that would come to a physical event in another venue, somewhere else, um, you know, somewhere else in the city, or but more importantly, somewhere else in the world. Uh, go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I used to go to an event called uh, All Things Digital, which became Recode, which became mm-hmm. Code. And I just looked up the price of going to Code, and it's $10,000. And when someone else was paying my way, that was a very good price. Now it's my way. Um, it's the highway. So, you know, if they came to me and said, we would do a digital first version of the Code Conference, all the same guests, all the same, you know, content in the room, but rather than being in the room, you know, for 50 bucks, you can watch it all live. That would be an easy $50 for yeah. me. Or 100 no or, or, or 150 or 200 You know, it, right. it, could be, it could be $200 and a lot of people would show up, you know, for, for, um, uh, for Recode. You know, for 200 bucks for, for a couple of days of those discussions, if it was really a great experience, you know, to do that. Um, their problem is they got to figure out, you know, the, the $10,000, I mean, obviously it's a good business model. It's also to just weed, you know, weed a lot of people out, um, you know, because, you know, I don't know what the Davos numbers are, but they're, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to be there. Um, and that's to, you know, so that a certain number of people can, you know, um, be there. So it's it, it creates the exclusiveness. But I, to your point... I think that you could create these digital first events where the people who want to hobnob and do those dinners and everything else. And I, I admit the digital first, my vision, I don't know what will happen, but my vision for a digital first event is that it's really expensive to come and there's a hundred seats, maybe 200 seats max, but it's like a hundred seats and it's like $1,500 a person to go. But when you're there, there's great dinners and there's entertainment. We're going to have a show by a band. And, you know, like there's a thing that is really exclusive for the, the hundred people that could pay for it. And for the digital first folks, though, they are front row for all the discussions. And we build special things for them that may not be the same as the ones that we can do when you're in person, but they're still great events. There's exclusive ways. Like I want to go, if we have 20 booths, we're going to take a camera to every booth the way we do with NAB or, or with um, NAM. We'll take a camera, but that camera represents 2,000 people. Like, you know, they're going to walk up and ask questions of your booth for an hour or two. And, and 2,000 people are standing at your booth right now. And for a, for a vendor, that's way better, you know, than, than just this kind of hodgepodge of, of stuff that happens right now. Um, next question. Alexander is back with a question. Is there more buzz about Zoom ISO in the industry? Did anyone talk about that, even casually, about what could be accomplished with it? Well, we had Andy up for 15 minutes. <laughs> so we did talk about it. So so Andy and I had a, a quick discussion. That'll, I'm sure that was recorded and will go up eventually. But so Andy and I just talked about the history of, you know, how Liminal got started and, and how it became part of Zoom and, and what they're doing with it and how they pro- produce it. So I think it definitely had some folks, I mean, afterwards, it definitely had people coming up to at least me, I'm sure Andy too, but um, asking about it, like, oh, we've been doing these, like, just screen scrapes and not really, or people coming up and saying, yeah, we're using, you know, ISO. And and so those are, and and there's some really complicated 
there's some interestingly complicated questions about how to manage call-ins and callers and everything else. So I think we're going to see some really interesting developments as we move forward. Uh, last question. Last question from Alexander Knight in Canada. Do we know anything about the final delivered recording for the event? Will it be able to watch it in 4K with HDR? I doubt it, but we'll see. I, I have no idea how it was recorded. I didn't manage that part, so I don't know uh, if it was recorded. I, they had a 6K there. If it was me, I would have recorded it at 6K, <laughs> and then and then um, you know and then and then converted it all down and did color correction and everything else. Uh, I mean, there are just discussions around it. I'm not sure if it would be worth worth it um, with two cameras in the back to do it in 4K, but it could be. I mean, just to show that you could, I think it would be there. So so I think that overall, um, you know, I, I'm really excited about what SVV is doing. And I think that there's going to be a great way for us to uh, integrate, you know, what we're doing. I think that there's a lot of, um, I kind of see them as a almost a sister organization that, you know, we can, you know, I think that there's things that we're doing that are really interesting to them. And there's things that they're doing that's really interesting to us. And so I think that we're going to find um, ways to work with them to, to do this. So this was just the beginning of that, of that process. And so um, we'll cover it. And this is the, the, the lightest version of our coverage of an event. <laughs> so Alex takes a couple photos. Um, you know, what we want to do hopefully is uh, in this kind of event in the future, hopefully more of us show up at one of these events and take more pictures and video and everything else. I realized the, the one thing I learned was that it was hard because I was in so many conversations and there were so many people that wanted to talk that I didn't have as much energy. I didn't have as much energy focused on it as capturing as much as I probably would have otherwise. And so I think if I just went into cover it, it was fine. But I think that um, um, that was that was the challenge. But I think we, we got some, we, we got some, I think we found the most interesting pieces of that puzzle there. All right. Thanks to the uh, producers for all the great questions. I wasn't sure if it was going to go for a whole hour, but it's, you know, the questions just kept rolling in um, and, and, and moving, moving through it. So uh, thanks for all the great questions and, the, and your attention. And thanks to the panelists, of course. Can't do this without you. A nice, really great. It was great to be back. I missed yesterday. I was going to try to do yesterday from a hotel room. And I was just like, oh, I don't, I don't know how much bandwidth. Turns out I would have had enough bandwidth. The Sashi in Mountain View. 20 uh, down, 40 up, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> so, so uh, anyway, brand new hotel. Um, so that, 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 that's the one. Um, but I, I could have done it, but I just did because I didn't know what the hotel was going to be like. I was like, oh, I'd just rather have Bill, Bill run that go. Did that, did that go yesterday? Go, go well yesterday? Did you guys? Yeah, have I, th I think so. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to tell from the inside, but yeah, it felt good. Yeah. Interesting guest. He had a lot of good things to say. That's great. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, thanks to the incredible backend team uh, who I talked about a lot yesterday with a lot of people of, you know, uh, just how amazing uh, what, what we do is and people coming in from all over the world to produce an event every day, seven days a week. It's just crazy. So anyway, um, I really thank everybody's effort and, uh, and, and what, they're, what we're putting together together. So thanks so much. All right, let's go ahead and uh, jump into After Hours. 62,000. 100,000 kilometers, 563 bananas per scale, about 200, 563 million bananas per scale. There's a Hasbuk sighting. There's a Hasbuk sighting. We see Hasbuk, we're going to do the overflow, we're gonna, we need to do an overflow room in Cape Town. So we do the digital first event. I'm going to need a room in there. We're going to see we're also in Cape Town. And then everybody will wave. So that's going to be important. Just added a lot of bananas for Aspen today. Oh, I gotta go. Bye. Bye bye.